VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, February the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonz King is sitting in for David Williams this morning. So you'll be speaking with Fonz when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Uh, so frosty all morning. It was minus 11 when I got up and on the go this morning. First thing I did, break the scraper. Fantastic start. You know, this is when the winter starts to really drag for many people. And it's a holiday in eight of the different provinces and territories across the country today. A variety of different holidays. It's Family Day for most of those provinces. Islander Day in Nova Scotia. Louis Riel Day in this province. It's a work day. And look, there's a couple of things and a couple of holidays that we get, if you're lucky enough to get them. You know, including St. George's Day and St. Patrick's Day. Not everyone gets those holidays. But people talk about a February holiday and maybe do away with one of those arbitrary, maybe more religious-based holidays that are celebrated in other times of the year. All right, so our Team NL competitors and their coaches and families have made their way to PEI for the Canada Winter Games. Got off to a nice start in the uh, hockey tournament, so the boys won their opening game, 8-0 over Nunavut. They've got the territories today. And interestingly enough, I had no idea that we had any real competitive speed skaters in the province, but apparently we do. It's a great sport, whether you're talking about long track, which I prefer, or the short track, but 18-year-old Noah Bolton from Little Rapids, he's competing in his first national event that happens to be the Canada Winter Games. It's huge that he became one of 64 skaters to actually qualify for the Canada Games, so he's pretty nervous. Albeit excited, his competition starts today. So he's there with his coach, Sharon Kern, and the assistant coach is his mother, Nancy Bolton. So good luck to everybody competing at the games today in a variety of different sports. Just follow Team NL on Twitter. You get a breakdown of what the competitions hold for today. So you mentioned uh, Noah Bolton at 18. You know, I think the average age at the games, because there's a different age limit for different sports, but they're going to be around 17 years old. It was today in 1998, 25 years ago, that American Tara Lipinski became the youngest gold medalist in the Winter Winter Olympic history when she won the ladies' figure skating title at Nagano, Japan. 15 years old. So she was a roller skater 10 years prior. She won her age group at the age of 9 in the U.S. Championships. Then she went on to win the world figure skating title at 14 years and 9 months. And then, of course, an Olympic gold medal at 15 years of age. Extraordinary stuff. Uh, big shout-out to St. John's native Abby Newhook. Set a career high in goals uh, for scoring the NCAA. Of course, she plays for Boston College. So she had a super season last year, and not the greatest team this year, but Abby has eclipsed her total from last year with her 18th over the weekend, so good for her. And Dawson Mercer, Bay Roberts, great weekend for him. Four points in two games, including three goals, two last night. So Mercer having a fine season. And, of course, sticking with the ice, uh, team Stacy Curtis at the Scotties Tournament of Hearts. Off to a reasonable start, I would suggest. Of course, up first against Ontario, three-time champion Rachel Holman. Lost there, but then beat the UConn uh, yesterday. Stuck it in there with Jennifer Jones from Manitoba last evening. They're back on the ice today. Only one game today for them, and I believe it's against the Territories. But we always just say, you know, Team Guju or Team Curtis or Team Smith or whoever. The skip is Stacey Curtis. The third is Erica Curtis. The second is Julie Devereaux-Hines. The lead is Camille Burt, and they're coached by Eugene Trickett. So 
good luck to them. And a quick shout out to the ladies out in Clarenville who are trying to win the Canada Story Contest for 2023. So this team is for Skip Holly Pickett, the third is Margie Bromley, second is Ruby Boone, and their lead is Marg Lannon. So they're looking for your votes. You go to curlingdaycanada.ca and then you can uh, search out their particular team. They're telling their story about how in the beginning out in Clarenville, like many parts of the province where curling was first brought to town, and that was in the early 1980s out in that community, it's actually where I threw my first curling stone, albeit wearing full hockey equipment, because that's what they did. They curled at the hockey rink. So they've got a great tale to tell, but they need your vote to get through to the finals and to hopefully win the contest. So just go to curlingdaycanada.ca and vote for Team Holly Pickett. Okay, let's keep going. Thankfully, for some... 20 schools and 4,000 students that were impacted. The busing routes have been restored as of this morning. You know, it's a curious story. When it broke last week that the district was uh, canceling their contract with Gladney's bus services, you know, citing that there were safety concerns. Not much in the way of details coming beyond that. And, of course, then the rumor mill takes over. But here's where it gets a little bit odd. Now, of course, safety for the problems of students has to be paramount. But they're actually using some of Gladney's buses and drivers. So I guess service and L stepped in to do some inspections on some of these buses. So they piecemealed it together with a bunch of different private contractors. And so the busing is restored, which is absolutely terrific news. But you wonder what else must be involved here. Because if it was Gladney's service overall, but now Gladney's buses and some of Gladney's drivers are on the road, curious. So... I guess the good news for those families impacted is that there is indeed a bus for you today. So I guess the investigation continues. Remains to be seen if this current structure is going to last throughout the remaining of the school year. And then there's lots of things to consider inside of school busing, isn't there? Whether it be the old arbitrary 1.6 kilometers away from your front stoop to the front door of the school, which has been a concern for many over the years, but even the way the busing services are handled in the province. I've heard from bus operators that say it basically comes down to a race to the bottom. So, lowest bid will win. We found ourselves in some dangerous positions a few years ago. Remember the whole scandal regarding inspections of school buses? Some were being falsified. And now this particular issue with Gladney's and the school district. But they're back on the road today. It's still lots to understand on that front. But there should be less congestion in some of those school zones where parents or family or friends or whoever were dropping the children off when they didn't have a ride to school. And I know this one's a little bit behind us, but, you know, a bit of snow last week, and combined with a bit of ice in and around this neck of the woods. And, you know, it really does boil down to where the priorities are for cleanup. Now, I get it. Snow clearing is not an easy task, especially in the capital city, depending on the street, because... It's much different if you can plow the snow up onto my front lawn versus some of the tighter, more narrow streets in the city center and the downtown core. But regardless if you're a pedestrian or not, the sidewalk clearing, I know they've added to it and extended the number of kilometers that will be cleared and be salted, but it was treacherous out there for most of the week. And even as someone who was not on foot, it does indeed put your heart in your throat driving around. Now, you're trying to be careful anyway, given the winter conditions, but with pedestrians with no other option but to walk on the road, I admit freely that there were several occasions where I thought, oh, please, oh, please don't slip. I'm just crawling along hoping to get by. But the way that the province, or the city, pardon me, approaches clearing the routes for the pedestrian public is 
Always going to be questionable. I mean, of course, there's the snowstorm, the most recent one is behind us. Not to say that we're not going to get more. So if you're a pedestrian and or a motorist and nervous like I was driving around, I went down one of the major streets in the city of St. John's one day late last week, and a bunch of students from the close nearby school walking in the street. Anyway, that was a big one last week, I would imagine. And then there's lots of stories about eating healthy at school. I believe we're going to speak with Selena Stoyles from Kids Eat Smart. We all know what it feels like to go into a grocery store these days. I went over last evening for just two items, orange juice and this particular sauce we were putting on chicken for dinner. Over $18, right? The juice was 10 bucks. Amazing stuff. So we know the costs have soared and what that means to eat healthy at school. And it goes even further to understand that one in four children in this province live in a food insecure environment. And maybe their best shot at getting something nutritious and tasty and healthy is at school. There's still a clamoring for a national food program in the country's schools. We're the only country in the G7 that does not have a national program. So how we address that, but isn't it just simply shocking to know that for many children, going to school is not only an opportunity to learn and to socialize, but it's the place where they can get a bite to eat because they can't get one at home. And food apparently is way down the list for many families as they try to keep up with what we're all experiencing inside the envelope that we call cost of living. But anyway, let's tackle that from whatever angle you see fit. And of course, the snowstorm around here and many of the weather events that we've seen really do represent minor inconveniences when compared to things like Fiona. We're coming up on the five-month anniversary, and some folks in the area, via email and otherwise, are asking me to ask people and the government, where's the money? So the government was pretty quick out of the box to come forward with the announcement of some $30 million to help people rebuild the houses that have been now inhabitable or washed out to sea or simply destroyed. So coming up on five months and families who have been shuffling between staying at their cabin staying with their children, whether it be on the West Coast or the East Coast, staying in hotels, just kind of wondering where we are. What kind of timeline are we looking at to put money in hand to start that rebuild? And, of course, the stories coming from Fiona are still incredible. Sticking with the West Coast, the World Energy GH2 did indeed go to court to seek a court injunction against the protesters holding up their operations out of mainland, the old meteorological data compilation tower project that is uh, currently undergoing. And uh, sometimes I wonder if it's a coordinated uh, event and or simply frustrated people sitting at home and thinking, I've got to get this off my chest. And again, via email, even though I prefer a telephone call here on a call and talk show. So World Energy's injunction is still in place. They go back to court on the 3rd of March. Eight residents from the Port of Port Peninsula did indeed make their initial appearance in Supreme Court in Corner Brook. But... I guess that conversation is wide as it is broad, so or as deep as it is broad, so we can tackle that from every angle because that one remains at the top of the charts. Okay. Sticking with industry for a second. Profit's not a bad word, right? It's not. I mean, for business, for the most part, that's why they're in business, to be profitable. But when we look at, you know, whether it be Equinor and their pending decision that paid in order, we can tackle that from benefits agreements and jobs onshore, which is a huge part of this conversation, and or Article 82, the UN Convention on Law of the Sea, and developing countries that are going to get hundreds of millions of dollars from somebody. And I'm sure that's one of the major sticking issues. But, you know, even when it was Suncor and their operations at Terra Nova, they came to the province with hat in hand. 
right? Oil prices had catered at that point during the pandemic. They struck a deal eventually in June of 2021, but it came with a pretty big price tag when you look at the province itself. So there was that federal fund, and they got, it was the total inside of that was, I think, $284 million. Notably, none of which went to individuals, simply went to companies, and Suncor were one of those companies. In addition, some of the money they got there, the province forfeited in the neighborhood of $300 million in royalties. So there was a lot of financial incentive for Suncor to get back out there. The FPSO is still undergoing some inspection. They're hoping to be producing sometime in April or May. And this new refit has extended the life uh, of the field itself by some 10 years. But how do we find a position of leverage, some sort of upper hand in negotiations, especially when we look at Equinor? The profitability of these companies is unbelievable, including Suncor, whose profits doubled last year versus the year prior. Every company that you look for, uh, the major oil producers in the world, have shown absolutely record profits, whether it be ExxonMobil and $55.7 billion in profit in late January, exceeding all their expectations, exceeding all the previous records. So we know, and the oil companies know, doesn't matter what side of the oil industry you're on, is going to those negotiations, I don't know what kind of levers we can pull to ensure that we maximize the benefits, especially on the jobs front, because that seems to be the number one worry. You know, we're still apparently hell-bent for leather to have a, uh, an equity stake at some 10%. I don't know if that's the big deal for Equinor or not, but their profits are just absolutely madness. And you hear from Minister of Energy Andrew Parson saying it's enough to make you want to ball up your fists. But, of course, they hold a lot of the cards. Where we go from here on that, we can talk about it. All right, some pretty big news at the end of last week. Seems like there's a lot of big news comes at the end of weeks. And on the federal level, so Justice Paul Rulo conducted his review of the uh, government's invocation of the Mercies Act for the first time ever. And, you know, there will be people say, well, this was predetermined outcome and what have you. But Justice Rulo did indeed say that the federal government had met the threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act. But I'm sure the federal government is breathing some sigh of relief, but they did not get a big gold star from Justice Rulo. They simply did not. The Prime Minister included. Mr. Justice Rulo pointed quite clearly inside his 2,000-page document that some of the Prime Minister's own comments really fanned the flames. And now Trudeau has backed, you know, the Prime Minister has said he wished he had to rephrase what he said, but he said what he said. And so Rulo is quite clear that the Prime Minister was not helpful on this front. There was also a clear problem with the four different police forces in the region and the dysfunction you know, intelligence says that it could have been avoided in full. The lack of coordination and it seems certain incompetence amongst some of these law enforcement agencies. So there's a lot to take in there. Even the executive summary is almost 300 pages. So I tried to get through some of it, but I didn't get through a whole, whole lot of it. But he ultimately said that the federal government was justified. But the, uh, inside the 56 recommendations is a lot of stuff to really have careful consideration of. And there's no way that the federal government can say they got a clear pass from Justice Rulo. Yes, met this threshold. Yes, there was some use of tow trucks that was enabled by the Emergencies Act, even though, you know, those four law enforcement agencies bill the federal government some $500,000 for tow truck services. But he says that this has got to be amended. You know, whether it be the national reputation or border blockades, and he did indeed 
praised the law enforcement officials who dealt with border blockades and condemned those within the ranks of law enforcement in and around Ottawa. And there was a lot to this, and we can absolutely take it on. But, you know, and there was lots of motivations as to why the convoy or the protest took place in the first time. But the fringe minority comment, he did go on to say that he understands why the federal government didn't meet with protest leaders, because that was also a fairly disjointed affair, but they get the high-level pass, but inside the weeds of those 2,000 pages, lots of condemnation go around, whether it be with Premier Ford, the four law enforcement agencies, yes, the Prime Minister, and others, but that was big news at the end of the week, and I'm sure it's not going away today. Also, you know, Depends on the bent or the bend or the leanings of whatever media outlet that you focus in on. But in reference to the ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, who's been in place since 2018, and he's pretty exasperated with the number of scandals and ethics violations that his office has been investigating since even he came in. But of course, that has happened right since the 2015 where the federal liberals came in. So this one is really something else. So there's a Liberal member of Parliament, his name is Greg Ferguson. He's the Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister. He violated the Conflict of Interest Act. He petitioned the CRTC, like this stuff. They pretend that they don't know the rules, which is no justification for the numbers of ethics violations that have been held up by ethics commissioners regarding the federal government. So this guy here petitioned the CRTC on behalf of his body to get a small television station license and a broadcast license for mandatory distribution in Quebec. He goes on to shrug his shoulders and say, you know, it's an unintentional error. Are we honestly led to believe that people in those positions of authority don't have the wisdom between the ears to understand that that kind of stuff, uh, lobbying a regulatory body on behalf of your body, is not, not only outside the letter of the law for ethics, but in some corners, it's a crime. I mean, absolute madness. So... The Prime Minister of himself has been investigated three times, sanctioned twice, notably the SNC-Lavalin affair, and his trip to the island of the Aga Khan. Then Dominic LeBlanc was taken to task for giving a fishing license uh, to a company where his wife's cousin was at the helm. And then Mary Ng, her industry uh, minister, with a couple of contracts going out the door to her buddies and up and down the line. So, you know, at some point... Regardless if you're a staunch liberal, you've got to be wondering, what is going on? You know, and what actually comes out of these ethics violations? A fine, to be sanctioned, what does that mean? Obviously, even if the Prime Minister himself is sanctioned, and now the most recent ethics breach by his own parliamentary secretary, you know, the clamor there is, well, let's have mandatory ethics training for all members of parliament. Mario Dion has offered this up, and at very limited occasions has anybody taken him up on mandatory training or some training regarding the ethics code. Let's just do away with whether or not it's going to be a personal choice made by individuals or departments. Let's make it mandatory and do more about this because it's maddening. And even if you are full in, all in for the federal liberals, this has got to give you pause for thought to say, you know what, even if it's the liberals win again or the conservatives or whatever combination that in a minority parliament, let's make them all. As opposed to focusing on initially on procedure, let's get right down to ethics because it's absolutely maddening and you want to take it on. We can do it. Uh, I wanted to get this one out there very quick too before we go. And of course, a lot of the protests in Ottawa was regarding mandates and vaccination. 
Now inside the Lancet, using some 65 studies from some uh, 19 countries, comparing the natural immunity from contracting COVID-19 versus the protection offered by the vaccine. They say that the natural immunity is very much like, and in some cases exceeds, the protection from the vaccination. And some of the examples, of course, everybody's different with their level of health and their age and comorbidities and what have you, but they say that natural immunity can last up to 19, or up to 10 months, pardon me. Now, there's a couple of strains that were uh, excluded from this study. There was a couple of uh, hybrid vaccinated people that were excluded from this study, but it is a massive investigation into immunity and what it looks like. It does not say that there's a preference one way or the other. So, and again, when you read these fairly complex reviews and peer-reviewed uh, reports coming from healthcare, whether it be on COVID vaccinations or otherwise, but the natural immunity has, you know, in some cases lasted up to as many as nine months, or pardon me, 10 months. So the information, I guess, would be used as if any government will have any inclination to go down the road of mandates ever again. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlinevocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to kick off the week. That only works when you call. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Maxine. You're on the air. Okay. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, thanks. Um, I'm calling about um, about the HMP. I got a son in, the, in there, and their conditions in there aren't that good. No running hot water, and like the bedding, I don't know how often to get their bedding. And in the kitchen, they got like... Um, up over the kitchen, like they got a funnel or something there with a bag over it, a garbage bag, and it's a toilet up over the kitchen. Like, I have to send canteen money in for my son so he can eat because he can't eat, eat. They're afraid to eat from the kitchen because you don't know. There's rats and mice going around down, down there. Like, you know, that's an uh, awful way to be living, like in there. I know, too, if they've done a crime, that's where they spend their time. But they don't have to live in those conditions. They're still human beings. I've actually had a tour of the pen, and this is, say, five or six years ago now. And I requested a tour that wasn't the, you know, when they're all locked in at lunchtime or what have you. Wanted yeah. to, I wanted to see it in action when all hands were out on the range, as they call it. Look, yeah. the conditions are deplorable. And this conversation, the biggest problem with this, Maxine, is that people simply think, you know, well, you're a criminal, too bad about you. You get what you get. You don't deserve anymore. But the fact yeah. of the matter is... If you come out worse than when you went in, that's bad for all hands. And some of those that's conditions true. are absolutely not fit for man nor beast. So I've yeah. seen it between the rats and the mice. And to know in the height of winter, there's no running hot water. It's a fair conversation to be had about, you know, how we treat inmates. Because, as you point out, they are humans. Yes, they deserve the punishment that they're getting for whatever crimes they've committed. But those conditions yeah. are just unbelievably bad. Yeah, and another thing, too, like, I know, like, for where I work, like, uh, like if we got health and safety coming to do an inspection, they call before they come. But I think the health, and they should go for an inspection, but don't give them a warning that they're coming. Just go and do it, and don't give them a call. Let them know that they're coming and what day they're coming and whatever. That, 
that is what's happening too, because I know, like stuff like that, and they don't deserve to live like that. I'm gonna say you got that. You got people in there that got really bad immune systems, probably. Like you know, and they can't even get their medications. My son can't even get his medication in there. What kind of medication? Don't, you know, don't have to give me the name of the pill, but is it for treating an addiction? Is it for a mental illness? Is, is it for another uh, well, health condition? He, 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 like he's, he's in a, he's in a, he got an addiction, but it's not for the pill for that. Like it's something to help him, like relax and that. You know what I mean? Okay. Like you know, and he's not even getting that. They're not giving him nothing. Like you know, like I don't agree when I'm going to give him like someone that's an addiction. I don't agree when I'm going to give him narcotics. That is not the answer. No, certainly not when you're no. in that situation or that setting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's always a tricky one. Now, there's, you know, add to it that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% of the inmates down there are on remand, haven't even been found guilty of anything inside a court of law. So we should add that to the conversation. There's an overcrowding yeah. component components of this. And, you yeah. know, people were really quite cross when they were given some video game consoles because some programs had gone by the wayside. But we know what idle hands can get themselves up to, whether it be inside or outside the penitentiary. So, That's right. Yeah. How long is he in for? Well, he, he's still only in remand. You got, got, you got another court going off now, February the 23rd. But I think he's looking at 12 to 18 months or probably more. But now, it, like saying that with the programs, you got no programs going on in there. Like, like my son, he was into um, Corner Brook Rehab before a few years ago. And... Like, they had the programs in there. And he come out, he was doing really good for so well, but then he got tangled up. I'm not blaming it on nobody else because it's your choice if you want to do it or not. But, you know, and if they offered the programs in there, like, you know, just something for them to do and, and clean up the place in there or put them somewhere else where that they can go and live like about water. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Uh, and I don't want to get into your business because it's really none of my business, Maxine, but... You know, when he needed to get some help and he went to Corner Brook, out to Humberwood, I assume, and then he was doing yeah. okay, then he fell into the, his old bad habits. D yeah. Did he leave home? Did he stay home? How do you talk to him about it? Because it's always difficult to know how to parent through some of these really difficult scenarios, whether it be addiction and or involvement with the criminal justice system. So how did that work in your home? Well, see, in our home, like me, I'm like, I'm the one. I couldn't give no tough love. So with me, with uh, with my son, I uh, like I didn't give him the tough love. Which everyone told me to give him tough love. I always stood beside him, like you know, and you know he wanted this, he wanted that, and I'd be the foolish one to give it to him. And so he, he like, and then after he started doing breaking and entering, because I wouldn't give him no money, and that doing breaking and enterings, like for to get the money for to go and get the you know the drugs and all that, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and now, like I said, in there is not big, no better because he seems like he's really up in the wind because the, the conditions in there. Like he said, he don't mind being in jail. Like he said, he knows he got the service time. But to live in those conditions. Like he got a good family environment because like, may, uh, like uh, myself and his father don't do no drugs and he got two sisters that don't touch no drugs or hardly drinks but he got one sister that's like him so you know what I mean so and two of them are close at age. How old is so, he? Uh, Chris is 42. He's 42. Does he yeah. live with you? Yes. 
Well, he did, but for, I, I put him out because of um, the way he got on with the addiction. And see, now I've got a, a great-granddaughter here with me too, right? Okay, so you want to keep yeah. her safe. Do you, yeah. do, you, do you think you're going to change the way you parent and deal with uh, Chris when he gets released? Uh, yes. And I'm sorry to pry, and I know this is very uh, difficult for you and your family, uh, but yes, the conditions, it doesn't matter what you think of people who have committed a crime. The fact of the matter is, if you've been in that inside the walls of that penitentiary, it is horrific. It just quite simply is. Uh, Maxine, I wish you well, and I thank you for your time. Okay, thank you very much, and you have a wonderful day. You too, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. It becomes one of those difficult conversations, right? Because... You know, for the longest while, politicians of all stripes have known what it's like down at Hermashie's Penitentiary. And then it was, you know, where do we spend money on different pieces of infrastructure or, or social programs or whatever the case may be versus spend money to build a new pen. You know, there's a lot. Look, punishment is part of it. You commit a crime, you make your way through the court system, you get convicted, you get sentenced, and you serve it. And so you should. What we do or what we don't do is probably focus enough on trying to keep you from coming back. You know, recidivism and what that means, whether it be integrating back into the community, whether it be supports for your mental illness and or your addictions when you are incarcerated and you are the epitome of a captive audience. Because if we're all concerned, and I think we all share the same concerns, we want the community to be safe. So things that we can do prior to your first involvement as a criminal and or upon your first conviction and upon your initial, whatever's going to happen, they're all getting out at some point, is how that looks. You know, what does that mean? What do we do on that front? Because the crime stories, whether it be you look at the Stats Canada numbers and the uh, 20% uptick in the number of violent crimes and the amount of cases that are on the desks of the Crown Prosecutors, violent crimes included, and they're now dealing with some 12 murders or manslaughter cases. Now, add, make that 13. There was a kid named Belbin arrested in the city last week for his role in a murder allegedly on Mayor Avenue. So, yeah. Okay, let's take a break. Roz, you're there to talk about health care out in Bonavista. You know, we all know these stories regarding the closure of the emergency department out there. Folks that are now having to travel to Clarenville maybe a couple of times a week for their dialysis treatment. There's a lot to that, and then we'll speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Roz. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi, I just wanted to put a, a bouquet out to the x-ray department at the health signs for their compassion that they showed me uh, while x-raying X-ray me and, and doing what they had to do. Um, I, like I said, I, I couldn't compliment, you know, the department any more than I could. Good. You know? Yep. And the party is, like I said, I, I found out I had a, a small fracture in my spine. But it took a while to get, it, get to find out what was wrong, all because I didn't have a family doctor. And you know, and, and the part is, it is necessary, Petty, that we we can go and speak to someone that knows us a little bit. You know, and the part is, I do not like to use the healthcare system unless I absolutely necessary need to, and sometimes. Um, that is not possible unless you got a doctor to, to be able to send you for things. 
But now my pain is under control again, thank God. Um, and, and I'm only on Advil and Tylenol because they gave me medication in the hospital to subside my pain and get me down to a level that I could tolerate. I, you know, I'm up and walking again. I couldn't walk there for a while. I, you know, my pain was so bad, my blood pressure went up so high, I could have had a stroke. And, and and that is frightening, Patty, because I'm an active lady. I like to swim. I like to walk. I do that all the time. And I do not want to be a burden on society. Well, and you're not you're not a burden. If you're unwell and you need the the treatment of a doctor or any healthcare professional, that's what you're supposed to be able to get. And you're supposed to be able to get it easier than people are able to do it in this province and across the country. I think it brings on the big questions about just how that how the province deals with the new, we'll call it, the new additional healthcare monies coming from the agreement between all the provinces, territories, and the federal government. Because if we're just going to spend it all on human resources, we'll deal with the immediacy of people's concerns. But if we don't spend it on trying to keep people out of the hospital, we've probably missed the essence and the themes inside the health accord. So I'm glad it's not my job because there's some really major decisions that need to be made there. I was surprised, to be honest with you, Roz, when the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, through their research, said that 125,000 people in the province did not have a family doctor, and then some... Uh, time later, told us that number has grown to 136,000. So obviously you're headed in the wrong direction. And I'm just lucky that in the recent past, last few months, I got into one of the collaborative care clinics. But, you know, I was over a decade without a family doctor too. Uh, And so I'm glad that you got treated the way you did at the radiology department here at the Health Sciences. And it also says you want to make uh, comments about Bonavista. Anything there? No, no. I have nothing. I don't know okay. anything about Bonavista, Patty. I don't know where that came from. But no worries at all. Okay. And thanks thanks for everything you do, Patty. You know, it is greatly appreciated by all of us. I appreciate your time, Ross. Take good care. Okay. Bye-bye. Alrighty, bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, line number three. Anne, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Morning to you. I'm... The, your second caller, she called about the same thing I am, the penitentiary. Okay. Who's in there belong to you? My son is in there, Patty. He spoke to Linda last week when you were on holidays. He explained the situation to Linda, the way that they are living there. It's unbelievable. Uh, they got a plastic bag hung up in, in a kitchen, which is coming from the West Wing, the toilet up in the West Wing is leaking in their kitchen. Their food comes from there. Yeah, I've heard the stories. Uh, well, Patty, it's ridiculous. Sunday, some of the uh, inmates were past their breakfast. There was mouse droppings on their plate. It's on, it, it, they're treated like dogs. My son has been sick there since Friday. He's been asking the guards, can you please get a thermometer and check my temperature and that I am not well? He was told, if you are that sick, we'll put you in the basement. That's not called for. Well, being put in the basement doesn't do anything to uh, treat whatever kind of sickness he's experiencing. I Actually, you know what? And I talk about treatment of inmates and what I think makes more sense and how it currently goes on these days. And I do think we have to talk about bail reform, you know. It's a big part of it as well. But 
you know, as much as I try to understand what goes on inside the walls and what I think might be a better approach inside of criminal justice, even that said, I went to the bank one day late last week. It was maybe Friday. I'm not sure. And there was an inmate in there. I've never seen that before. I've seen inmates in their handcuffs and leg irons and stuff, or for instance, in the hospital. But there was a corrections officer and an inmate in the bank. And I'll admit freely that it was a little bit unsettling. And even though I understand and I try to understand and speak to treatment of inmates and what goes on inside HMP and coming back into the community, but if I felt a little unsettled, just imagine how some others may have felt. Because I'm not afraid of anybody who was all chained up. I mean, there was nothing to be fearful of. But it was just a scene that I hadn't experienced in the past. So uh, a couple of quick ones. How long is your son, how long has he been in? How long is he going to have to be in uh, after today? He'll be out in 30 days. He'll be out in 30 days. Patty, he waited 28 days for clean sheets for his bed. Yeah. He's, in his, he's in a little cell. He got no water. He got a little toilet in there and no water. That's ridiculous. It is. And the wait, you know, uh, on Friday night, there's this other inmate there. He was in his cot. And he was wondering what was crawling on him. Patty, there was a big rat crawling up his back. The place is swarming with m- mice and rats. And the way these inmates have been treated, you know, I understand. You you do the cr- crime, you serve your time. Yes. But they're serving time down there now, just like you, you wouldn't even treat a dog this way. I appreciate the time, Anne. Uh, you're, obviously, there was lots of calls about this last week while I was away, and yes. second one already this morning. But uh, hopefully conditions, and now I guess you know it's easy enough to wait for the new penitentiary to be built. I don't know how much focus they give to the rodent population inside the walls. I know it's virtually impossible to keep them free in full of rodents, but you know, if I see a rat out in the park, my hair stands on end. I can only imagine if I had one walking up my back, I'd be out of my mind. Yes. Well, Patty, when my son called in last week to, to uh, and spoke to Linda, after he got off the line, the guards come in and yelled, everybody in their cells, because this call was made to ye. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And it's the reality, you know. So that's just the unfortunate thing that the inmates are experiencing. But I appreciate your time. I hope that you're doing okay, And How do you cope when the young fellow's in? Petty's hard. He's had to write up a piece of paper to put our names down, come for a visit. They're after heaving him in the garbage on him several times. He's supposed to get his canteen on Thursday. He asked, where's my canteen? He turns around and says, oh, you have that in the garbage too. So what, what's the issue with uh, getting your names on the visitation list? What's the problem there? He, he told them that he wanted their names on the visitation list. Yeah. And he said, they're done. Daryl said, where are you Oh, I don't know. Where are you now? But, Patty, they're treating him like... I wouldn't treat a dog like it. I understand. Yeah, it's I don't know what, I'm not sure what the issue would be with just trying to get someone to be allowed to come visit you. Why, is he giving the guards a hard time and they're pushing back? No, Petty's not giving the guards a hard time, no. There's people down there younger than my son. My son looks out for them. He said, man, some of them won't call it to open line. But he said, oh, I, I will. 
And when the guards come in after and said, who done that call? All the other inmates stepped back. My son spoke up and said, I done it. And you're getting, you're getting in, in trouble because you've done that. Uh, well, Some of the guards down there, Patty, are rude as can be. Yeah, and some are best kind. See, that's the problem too, isn't it? Because like everything else, when we put everyone into the same pile or paint them with the same brush, we probably don't get too far ahead. But the guards have a job, and I know it's a tough job. I know it's a potentially very dangerous job. But you can indeed make it less dangerous if you are able to win the respect of the inmates versus be at a constant loggerheads or butting heads or, you know, creating an atmosphere where there's no trust, no respect between anybody, then all of a sudden things are more dangerous than they probably need to be. Uh, and uh, you take so good sick. care of yourself. I'll give you the last word. Go ahead. Teddy, he's so sick. Can't he come up and check his temperature and everything? They're not even, won't even do that. Hope he's doing okay, and I hope you are too, Anne. I'm going to take a break here now, but take good care of yourself. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye, Anne. Okay, bye-bye. You know, and those numbers, look, we hear from court officers, whether it be lawyers or the sheriffs or lawyers, judges, is, you know, the numbers of people coming through their courtrooms with a mental health issue or an addictions issue is somewhere around the neighborhood of 70%. Then, of course, we've got the revolving door of folks who are continually committing crimes. They're in and out of prison all the time. And then, yes, the bail reform issue. You know, it's uh, granted to you the ability to apply for bail. And I think there's lots of big questions about some people who do indeed get bail and whether or not they do pose a threat to the community. But, I mean, they're all, we're obliged to give them a hearing. We're not obliged to give them bail. You know, whether or not the new penitentiary, which is absolutely required, the place of dungeon, you know, is there a way to also deal with folks who have been charged with nonviolent crimes if we built a remand facility because there's a big difference between maximum security and remand for folks who are simply waiting to make an appearance in front of a judge and some as opposed to simply just the lockup down in the courthouse as well like can there be a cost-effective remand facility to ease the numbers of people inside the penitentiary because if 60 percent of the inmates at this moment in time are simply waiting for their quote-unquote day in court that's a whopping big number uh, let's take a break. When we come back, cost of living in the queue. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line two. Michelle, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Good. I called now just um, because I just started a new job and been trying to find childcare for my 14-month-old, and you would not believe how big of a nightmare it is. I've called probably over 30 places. Everything's one and a half year, two year wait, and me and my partner, my boyfriend, are currently working. So how can we work if? full-time to get an income to survive to live because the cost of living is sky high if we can't even find childcare, it's a massive story and especially the age of your child looking for a spot you know we can talk about ten dollars a day we can talk about the new uh, 
pay structure for early childhood educators, but we simply don't have enough spaces, period. So whether it be between regulated and unregulated, but for toddlers, I've got upteen stories of people who just cannot, no matter how hard they try, find a spot. No, and even if I found someone who has an opening, they're not taking them until two years or 18 months. Yeah. And I have a pretty independent child because he walks, he's self-feeding, we're currently potty training. So he's a really independent 14-month-old. So we still can't find nothing, no matter if he's self-feeding, no matter if he's walking on his own, no matter if he understands what you're saying, just can't fully talk, still can't find anything. And then we go to the grocery store and the cost of groceries, the cost of rent, the cost of light bill is sky high. And my, so we're currently um, trying to get my partner's mom from Africa just for we can have childcare to have someone to look after our son. But then the government also has ropes and leaps and bounds you have to try and do to get someone from another country here. Yeah. So are you on a wait list? And give me an idea how long some of the wait lists you've been talking to these operators. Uh, I am on, not aware of a lie, a 20 wait list. Um, the current, the earliest I can get in is September. If, But then she said, like, she don't know if he'd be able to get in them because it depends on the age group of the kids that she has in if she'll be taking like a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old and then everyone else is a year and a half to two years waitlist I had someone um, places that wouldn't even contact me for child care um, they wouldn't even like return an email or a phone call um, the people that did contact me was like we have like until 2025 2025 when you got when you go back to work i'm back to work now i'm so currently i work from home and in office um my boyfriend works from home and in office but trying to do an at-home job when you have a 14 month old running around makes it extremely difficult especially if you're on the phone and having to speak with clients or like you know your boss or managers or whatever and then so my mom she's a pca she's 60 years old um she's unable to retire until she's 65 so on her days off after working a 12-hour shift pulling and mugging and taking care of residents she takes her son for us for we can work so she legit don't have a day off at 60 years old which is very tiring for her because i mean you know She's at that age now where she should be retired. Yeah, I mean, how many people are relying on whether it be their elderly parents or a neighbor who's probably past their want to be looking after little children? Because even if you have a very self-sufficient 14-month-old who can go to the potty and can feed themselves, we all know that it's still... I won't call it a handful, but it's a full-time job throughout the day. You know, you can only plop them down in front of Buzz Lightyear so often. They still need that kind of attention and love and affection and monitoring that comes with being 14 months old. I'm not going to lie. He is, he's independent, but he is a handful. Oh, yeah. I totally get it. He is a handful. But, like, it's just 
I don't understand how the government expects people and um, families at my age, I'm 34, to survive and work in Newfoundland with the cost of living. And it's not the cost of food, it's the tax. It's not that, well, yes, it's the cost of food. It's everything. But it's also the taxes coming out of our paycheck. So me and my boyfriend were just talking, and we were saying how minimum wage is now poverty. People making a good income is now minimum wage, and people probably making 100000 is now the middle class. You're not too far off from my estimation. I don't know how anybody makes it. If they're living independently uh, and only making minimum wage or something close by, I just don't know how they can make ends meet and keep their head above water. I don't, don't get it. Uh, you know, but inside the world of childcare, then I'll give you the last word. It, you know, the headline grabber is 10 bucks a day. And that makes sense from what I've read everywhere where they have affordable childcare. It has a big benefit to the entirety of the community, the entirety of the, of the economy. But it's fine to be affordable, but if you can't get it, if it's not accessible, then it's a pipe dream to worry about 10 bucks a day. And then we've got to pay early childhood educators properly because we're putting our children and their development and their safety in their hands. You know, it's just remarkable. Look at both ends of the spectrum. How we train and treat uh, folks offering home care to our seniors, how we train and treat early childhood educators so we're responsible for our most vulnerable citizens outside of seniors being our children, there's something that doesn't make any sense. $10 a day is great, but it's only a handful of places that get it. And when you do get the $10 a day, you need to apply to for your family to be able to be eligible for it in that daycare that do provide it, which are very few in between. And then if you do get, like, accepted for it or whatever, you better hope that you're not 160 on the wait list because I'm on a wait list right now. And I'm number 160 on that wait list. There is 150 other families ahead of me, and that's not the only daycare. So what's good of $10 a day if you can't even get daycare to begin with? Yeah, totally get it. 10 bucks might as well be 1000 bucks if you can't find a spot. The government needs to do better. If they want families, young families, saying the government needs to do better. I appreciate the time this morning, Michelle. How are you enjoying your new job, even though it comes with the frustrations uh, surrounding daycare? It's difficult, but I love it. <laughs> Good. Well, that makes it a bit easier anyway. Not Life's not rewarding unless you get something challenging, eh, bye? Yeah, and 14-month-olds can be challenging. I was stay-at-home dad when my boys were that age, and I can tell you right now, both self-sufficient, potty-trained and stuff, but Jack was running before he crawled. So it was look out all day long, every day. I appreciate this, Michelle. Good luck finding a spot and good luck with your new gig. Thanks. You too. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, David, you stay right there. He's next in the queue. He wants to talk about the federal government. From what angle, who knows, but there's a lot going on. A lot. You know, I was told that we wouldn't dare talk about the ethics violations uh, on the show, but we've talked about every single time that any of the ministers and or the prime minister has been investigated regarding the what seems to be a fairly frequent f uh, flurry of ethics violations inside the federal government. And we can take that on or whatever David wants to talk about right after this news break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. 
This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. David, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, good to hear you again. Good to be back. Uh, yeah, you summed it up really good this morning. It's uh, worth two goal stars for you this morning because of the, the ethics uh, rules that has been broken in Ottawa is absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. There's no accountability uh, on anything anymore. Like one time the government was held in the highest uh you know, the highest respects, but now it seems like anything goes and there's no one to pay the price. Give us an example where you think someone's been actually held to account by an ethics commissioner. Because I, I can't think of one. I can't think of one either. I can think about hundreds of billions and millions of dollars that's gone missing, but nobody says where it went. I see uh, friends of the government getting their wallets uh, fattened up, but I see poor people in Canada starving to death. And that's what brought the convoy to uh, Ottawa in the first place, the government, not the people, the government. So The convoy was a thing because of what, I'm sorry? The, the government was, was what brought the convoy to Ottawa with uh, what was going on and, uh, and the decisions they were making about people's lives. And uh, people were losing control of their lives and still are. And it's like it did fish going downstream. It trickles down to the municipal government, the provincial government. If they see that the people in Ottawa are getting away with it, whatever they like, the provincial government say, well, we can do that too. The municipal government say, eh, we'll try that too, and so on it goes. Okay, no, I don't dispute that point. But you say, like, they still have control of lives. Like, I, the people were telling me that it was about vaccine mandates was the core issue uh, that resulted in the protest in Ottawa. So you say they still have control of lives. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, when they went to Ottawa, the government had control of lives, where they went and what they did and who they talked to. You couldn't even get in a hospital to see your loved ones dying or in a, a care home. So isn't that controlling people's lives? Yeah, but that, I mean, most of that was about uh, province, uh, provincial decisions versus federal decisions. So, like, that stuff wasn't even based on whether or not you were vaccinated. So what is still in place today that you think is government overreach, as people refer to? What do I think is a... An example of government overreach now. Because, I look, I understand where people were talking about uh, vaccine mandates and what have you. But what do you think is still in place that constitutes government being heavy-handed or overreach or even if that's what we're talking about? Because government is still underhanded and they're not telling you really what they're up to. They'll give you bits and pieces, but they're really not telling you what they're up to, like this digital ID and this gun control and all this kind of stuff. Like uh, hunters in Newfoundland, how many hunters goes out to uh, and kills people in Newfoundland with long, uh, long guns? Nobody. Yeah, that, that bill was was deeply flawed. There's no question there. And the government, for better or worse, or whether or not it's a backpedal or whether or not they heard legitimate concerns, backpedaled or they heard and dealt with the hunting rifle component because if that bill included a, a firearm that was of this capacity, that did this at this velocity with this bore, with this magazine, and the exact same rifle uh, that is not by the same manufacturer but with the same specs is banned and one is not, none of that makes any sense. So they had to deal with that, and rightfully so. Well, I got a high-powered rifle here, but I mean, she comes out the closet when I get a hunting license every five, five, six years. I don't put her in the trunk of my car and go around town all day long uh, uh, looking for trouble. I mean, I'm not that stupid. I don't think anybody is. So uh, I don't understand where all this is coming from. It don't make sense. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Canadians are by and large uh, in favor of gun control, but gun control has to make sense. If the end goal is to increase or enhance public safety, then that's got to be the starting point. It's not about just making a list as long as, as you can with all these different firearms on it. So if the focus needs to be on illegal handguns coming in from the states, let's focus there. If there are ways to have better controls inside our communities with access to firearms, use of firearms, sure, absolutely. And there's some kind of uh, firearms that I don't think are really necessary in this world, but let's focus focus in on the big problem, which seems to be handgun violence in particular, that's by the criminal element. Vast number of those guns come in from the United States of America. Let's deal with that first. That's right. That's right. You're absolutely right. And nobody's going hunting moose or bear with a 22 caliber rifle. I mean, that don't even make sense because uh, it just don't make sense. Something else you touched on was the immunity uh, of the non-vaccinated, if they had COVID, is um, just as good as the vaccinated, which is absolutely right. I had two heart attacks and open heart surgery, and I wasn't vaccinated. I had COVID. It was the flu. It was a, I had flu is a lot worse than COVID. I'm still alive. Yeah, it, it, it's, it hits people different ways, though. That's the only thing that I think gets lost in the COVID conversation is it doesn't hit everyone at the same age the same way. It just doesn't for every reason that you can think of, whether it be underlying health conditions, the so-called comorbidities, what strain you got. But yeah, I mean, the the issue regarding this, which I think is a very comprehensive study, which I read as much as I could actually try to understand, you know, how that influences decisions in the future. But I'd be shocked if any level of government went anywhere down a road of mandates, again, regarding a vaccine. I, I, I would be absolutely shocked. So... Anyway, I brought it up because I thought it was interesting, and it was certainly in a reputable, peer-reviewed uh, journal, which is The Lancet. A lot of people quote that over the uh, extent of the pandemic and pre-pandemic about the quality of work that they do indeed publish. So I brought it out for that reason. But what's not inside of that is what are the risks associated with being uh, infected with or contracting COVID repeatedly? Because there's also lots of peer-reviewed studies out there that show some long-term effects of being uh, infected repeatedly, what that means for long-term health. So that wasn't part of the study, which I think is a, a big component of how we talk about the virus, the spread, the impact, whether it be your first time or your third time getting it. But yeah, I brought it up because I thought it was an interesting story. But in saying that, I know people that vaccinated with four or five needles that have had COVID three, four times. So COVID, the vaccine was brought in uh, in the first place. He said that you wouldn't contract COVID. Then they stepped away from that and said, oh, it's going to lessen the effects. But I know people that have been in bed two weeks vaccinated three and four times with COVID. Yeah, but so, what, we, what we don't know inside that story is whether or not that person would be dead without any protection, whether it be natural or from a vaccine. Well, that's something only God knows that. Right, but that's got to be part of the conversation, right? Because some of those unknowns just get accepted as, well, it's a fact, that the the vaccine didn't do anything for you, there you were sick for a couple of weeks, or there you were in the hospital, when for some people, maybe, just maybe, it was their either natural immunity and or protections offered by the vaccine, which kept them out of Carnell's. So I don't know how those stats can ever be carefully evaluated and how they're discussed in the public sphere. But I used to think that it would be nothing more frustrating to talk about than Muskrat Falls, but the vaccine has eclipsed that leaps and bounds. Yeah, but also uh, for, uh, were saved for COVID patients that never come, and there are a lot of people who uh, got treatments delayed for cancer that are also passed away today because of this. Uh, 
a debt is a debt. No, that's what I'm sure. calm, so yeah, it, it, it created a problem. It created an absolute problem. Uh, right. Cancer care, less than many other uh, procedures, you know, cardiac list. The people uh, waiting for cardiac procedures grew quite rapidly at the beginning when there was a. Uh, COVID issues and, you know, trying to protect the healthcare system and all the rest of it. It did create a, a backlog on a number of fronts. Healthcare is now under much more scrutiny. It always has been under scrutiny. But since the since March of 2020, we have shone a very, very bright light on the healthcare system, not just here, but across the country. And we're learning, and I think people are coming to the realization there's no sense trying to or continue to dislocate our shoulders, patting ourselves on the back about universal healthcare because it's just not working. It's not. And that's not a liberal or a Tory or an NDP thing or anything. It's a system that has been headed down this path for years, if not decades. We're still treating and delivering health care the way we did in the 60s. And the world has changed. So it's yeah. time to change with it. Yeah, I agree 100%. One more thing I want sure. to touch on. I don't All know right. if it's a good thing or not. But uh, if a war broke out in Canada today and I was able to fight, do you think I'd be able to go to Ukraine and sit up in a hotel for six months uh, with my family? Uh, I think it's a pretty days? unfair question, uh, but you could you, you could go to Ukraine if you want, sure. Do you think I would be accepted? Well, there's Canadians over there fighting. Yeah, fighting. But while the, while the Ukrainians here are in hotels getting their meals paid for and getting their rooms paid for and getting sat up in apartments while our own people are suffering. Do that I got nothing against Ukrainians either. Great people. I love foreigners. I'm just asking that question. Is that food for top, really? Yeah, I think, you know, there's no way you can either be a... It's not a zero-sum game. It's not we can do this or we can't do that. If we can't do things in combination... You know, if we can't walk and chew gum at the same time, we're also in a bad spot here. So people fleeing from a war, whether it be in Syria or Ukraine, you know, what the appropriate numbers to bring in, I don't know. But upon arrival, like, for instance, Ukrainian refugees in this case, they don't get a whole lot of the federal supports that were initially in place for people who are refugees from other countries because it was fast-tracked. So what they might get from the province, they're not getting from the feds. So I think there's a bit of a wash. I don't think it makes anybody a bad person to ask out loud what it means, immigration in full, forget just Ukrainians, what immigration means regarding housing and health care. It's a real conversation. It's not unfair. You know, you can. You and I both know, when you're talking to someone who may indeed have a nefarious underlying thought, we can, we can smoke that out. But to ask about housing, which is a problem in the country, to ask about health care, which is in a crisis in the country, and what immigration numbers mean, is a fair conversation. And we should be able to have it without immediately saying, well, if you say that out loud, you're a racist. It doesn't make you a racist to think no, about no, the realities no. of life. No, I'm talking in broad strokes. It's not about you or me. Is no. you know, We just have to be able to have these difficult conversations without getting too extreme before the conversation even gets started. It gets derailed before it gets going because... You know, we have a lot of immaturity that are at the helm of leading these conversations. So we've got to try to knock that off and get down to reality and maturity versus just people flying off the handle, regardless of if you're in full support or fully opposed to immigration, whether it be at Harper levels or Trudeau levels or anything else, because, again, the world has changed and is changing quicker than ever before. Uh, David, appreciate the time. I'll give you the last yeah. word. Then I got to go. Uh, no, I agree with you. Uh, let's just do things for the right reasons. That's all. Not put better than our head. Let's do it for the right reasons. Hey, let's make sure that we can afford it and make sure we can take care of our own people in the meantime. That's all I'm saying. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. Bye. I mean, I, I think there's a way to do a bunch of things at the same time. You know, immigration is always going to be controversial. 
But nothing has changed in immigration from the Harper Conservatives to the Trudeau Liberals other than the numbers that either government is willing or wanting to accept. There's different silos of immigration that have not changed. Eligibility rules have not changed. What we've, had, what we've seen, though, is with the numbers, and whether they be exacerbated by COVID or anything else, the backlog to deal with the appropriate process or protocol for one immigration asylum or another has been further complicated simply because of the numbers. So the, there's a societal, uh, the, just speak for myself, there's a societal uh, upside to immigration without question. There's absolutely an economic upside to immigration that, I mean, it can't be disputed if you look at what the real numbers are over the decades here. It's just the numbers coming in and at what pace they're arriving. That's made it a much more complicated system and issue than it has been possibly in years past. Uh, let's take a break. When we go back, we're talking about a meeting out in Bonavista about what? Find out. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three, Reg, you're on the air. Um, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. Uh, I'm calling in. Uh, we we had our group had a, had a public meeting planned for last week. Uh, we called in about it, and you posted it a few times. And it got canceled because of the snowstorm. And we just want to let people know that the meeting is going ahead uh, this Wednesday coming. Uh, it's in uh, Discovery Collegiate, which is a high school in Bonavista. And it's 7 p.m., same time as it was scheduled for last week. So we'd like to get that out there if we could. And uh, there's a couple issues, I, I, a couple more things concerning health care I'd like to bring forward. Sure. Um, on the weekend, I, I read an article there uh, that was written by Daryl Roberts on CBC. And uh, he interviewed some people there in Bonavista concerning health care. But in his article, there was some, he, he quoted the premier as saying, if it was just money, money would have fixed this a long time ago. Now, to me, that is a very confusing statement because we know over the last little while, uh, like if, if, if the government obviously w- could fix it with money, like they said, why is the town of Bonavista coming forward and offering incentives, uh, some of those are cash incentives, and land to get a doctor into Bonavista if money is not an issue. I don't think anybody says money is not an issue. It's whether or not we can actually have a look at the last couple or three or four decades and have a look at how healthcare spending has increased, but yet positive health outcomes haven't. For instance, in the last four decades in this province, healthcare spending has grown by 232%. Is the system any better? Nope. But social programs have increased in spending by 6%. Are they any better? They're vastly worse. So I understand when someone says money is not the be-all and end-all. We spend over $3 billion on a population of just over 500,000 people in the province, and we got 136,000 of us without a family doctor. So money is part of it. I don't think it's everything. I mean, just even look at some of the accommodations or incentives that have been put out there for healthcare workers. Just look at nurses. How many casual nurses have not taken the government up on their signing bonus and other benefits to uh, go on to the permanent full-time list? Very, very few. So for them, apparently it's not all about the money. So, but I mean, wherever the money comes from, it don't matter. If the government is saying money is not the issue, what I'm saying is it's a bit confusing. So how do the, the community of Bonavista 
Alpheus, you're probably putting more money in. I mean, you know, money is money. Right. Well, I think now I can't speak for the town council or Mayor Norman or anyone else, but I'm guessing that they think there's only so much they can do. So if that is a selling or a, yeah, a selling a service lot with a value of say fifty grand to an incoming doctor for a dollar, it's just another incentive. Uh, whether they think that whatever cash they can dangle is going to bring a healthcare professional in, fair enough, because they can't build a new clinic, they can't buy new equipment. There's a bunch of things they can't do that the province and the feds really need to be responsible for. So I think the town is just trying to, as they say, think outside the box to say, well, here's a couple of things we think we might be able to accommodate, and maybe, just maybe, that'll secure a doctor. It remains to be seen if it will, but I, I get where they're coming from. Yeah, well, all I'm saying is the government is saying that money is not the issue, right? Well, that's not exactly what they said, but I know I know where you're coming from, Rich. Yeah, and and in in the same article, the the, the premier is also quoted as saying the challenges of Bonavista are not unique to Bonavista. Now, Patty, we know that that is not a true statement because we know since August month, at least August month, we have had three physicians in Bonavista who want to practice in Bonavista. We know that. They've contacted the, the government. They've contacted Eastern Alps, the Premier, the Minister. They all know that. They've contacted them. They've spoken to them. It took them until December to make them an offer. So we are not unique. I mean, there's no other area that you, you hear on the news or anywhere else in, in Newfoundland right now is coming out and saying, we got three doctors there and nobody wants to hire them. Nobody. Yeah. You know what I've been trying to find out, Reg, is exactly... Uh, now, I don't need to know the names of the doctors necessarily, but no. what is it that is holding anybody back here? What well, is it inside the government's offer? What is it inside these doctors' wants or lists of demands or whatever is the right way to put it is? So, like, what's the actual issue? Do we know? Well, see, Patty, that's what we're trying to find out. What is the issue? I mean, here you have three physicians who are, are telling everybody, and, and, I mean, Mayor Norman's made that statement. Everybody knows about it. And, and they're making the statement, the government is saying money is not an issue. To, you know, so what is the issue? I mean, it's time for somebody there in the provincial government or somewhere, in the minister or somebody, to ante up and say, okay, here is the problem. Right? It's crazy what's going on. And in the meantime, now our hospital is closed again. Well, we're closed for another two days now. This has been a five-day stretch. Right? And those three physicians could have come here as early as the fall. And there would have been no diversion in Bonavista, no closures. I mean, there's, there's obviously some issues there which nobody, I don't know why they don't want to bring it forward and say, okay, this is what, this is what's stopping those doctors from coming to Bonavista. It's obviously not money. I would know, but it would be helpful to understand because we've had some I pictures know. painted out fairly clearly. You know, whether it be the doctor who wanted to and eventually was able to come to an arrangement to stay on Bell Island, yep. the way that it was dealt with on Fogo Island, that one uh, veteran down in New England who was willing to come up, and there was more to that story. Yep. And they eventually got a doctor. But the very specific community to the community, and we're, just because we're talking about Bonavista, we'll stick with it. Yep. What exactly are the hurdles here? Like, what are we talking about? Or is it being exaggerated out in the general public? Because without detail, we all know what happens. We go either down worst-case scenario road or the rumor mill takes over or whatever, but details help us have legitimate conversations where we can focus in on the problem as opposed to letting people's minds just race to whatever length or end that they choose. 
Yeah. But the thing is, I mean, it, it, whatever the case is, like if those doctors made, uh, made contact with uh, whoever, the minister of health, the premier, or, or, or Eastern health, whoever, like down, uh, like early, late summer, early fall. I mean, whatever is going on there, why would it take like uh, four or five months before uh, somebody would make those doctors an offer? I mean, there's obviously some issues there. Yeah, and what they are, I don't know. No, and and nobody, and you know, nobody is saying anything. Everything is hush hush, which is not often the situation with the emergency room in Bandless, is it? And and people in this area. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It, it's you know, without details, we all we do the same thing. Doesn't matter what the issue is. You know, even if it's something as fundamental as the Gladney's contract going away with the English-speaking school district, you know, say safety concerns, what that means, who knows? So consequently, I've got 100 different rumors coming at me at light speed. Nobody really knows if there's any merit to them, but that's how the world works, isn't it? You know, we get an issue, we don't understand exactly what's behind it or who's behind it, and then we just kind of chase our tails around trying to figure stuff out. But I mean, we know, we know as our group, uh, as uh, we've been advocating for healthcare, we know that those doctors are there. We know that. I mean, we got proof of that, right? There's, there's not, this is not three people that we just somebody picked the name out of a phone book and said, oh, that's the people who want to come here. We know. Yep. So we know the facts, but I mean, I don't know what the problem is. And like I said, offering them money when the government is just saying that, oh, you don't need, we, we got money, basically. Money's not the issue. So all of a sudden, I, I can't see out of town throwing in another uh, 50, 80, 100,000. What, what difference is it going to make? It might, it might not make any. Yeah. Uh, Reg, give the folks the details of the, where they're waiting for the meeting on Wednesday. Okay, the meeting is Wednesday night coming up, and it's at uh, Discovery Collegiate, which is the high school, and it's at 7 p.m. Appreciate the and time. Open, uh, and thanks for uh, letting me on. No problem, Reg. You have a good day. You too, buddy. Okay, bye. Right, bye-bye. Right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Diane, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. I just wanted to talk about the clinic on Black Marsh, um, not Black Marsh, Monday Pond Road. Okay. You go up there at 7 and line up. They open the doors at 8. And this is for the walking clinic, not the collaborative care clinic? Yes, the walking clinic. Okay. yeah. So... You're standing out in the cold for an hour. In my case, I have emphysema and asthma. I cannot breathe cold air. I'll pass out. Yesterday, I went outside. The third breath, I had to turn around and come back inside. So do you think there's any way they could, like, let people in to wait their hour inside? I don't know. I actually, when I had my first appointment at the collaborative care clinic there on Monday Pond Road, just because of where I parked, I walked in the wrong door. So I walked into the walk-in clinic, and there's not a lot of space in the waiting area. That much I know for sure. Nor is there a whole lot of space in the waiting area for the collaborative care clinic. I wonder in the space in between the two, because there is, whether they can expand waiting room uh, opportunities, especially during the winter months. I don't know, because I don't know the footprint of the building inside and out. But inside that walk-in clinic, it's pretty tight quarters. Yes, I know. I was only over there once, but now I got to... I had an MRI a couple of months ago, yep. and I've been waiting for an opportunity to be able to go over there. And I was already go over Saturday, and I thought about the cold air. I said, sure, I won't be able to breathe. I'll end up passing out. Somebody will call an ambulance. That's going to cost me two or $300 that I didn't need. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Like, what am I supposed to do with no doctor? I really have no earthly idea. If there's any doctor out there, any kind heard a person at all who got an MD license, please give me a call. I'm on a waiting, endless waiting list for a collaborative clinic. So you put your name on Patient Connect. Oh, I don't know what it's called. Yeah, that, that's the official waiting list. I just try to make sure that people have not just left their name with a clinic or whatever, but actually formally put it on the government's wait list so that you can be assigned a clinic and assigned a doctor, oh, yes, which is what I there. did. It's been on there for over a year. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it took me a long time, too. I'm just, like, I had to stop a doctor here in the building visiting one of his patients to write a, a prescription for me because my prescription was up and I couldn't get in touch with, you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do. And I didn't want to go to emerge, so I, I don't know. I guess I creeped him out by calling him out in the middle of the hallway. <laughs> yeah, desperate times call for desperate measures sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah. But I really think they should have a waiting area inside for the winter. Yeah, I've got an appointment coming up, I think, next month or something like that. I'm going to ask if I can have a little walk around to see how much space is not being utilized between the two clinics, because there definitely is some, and whether or not that constitutes enough of a spot and enough staff for a, a separate well, waiting area, I don't know. But I'll just see if they'll let me have a traipse around. Yeah, a friend of mine told me now up at Black Marsh Clinic, Yeah, you can go in there and just pick a number, and then they have Dominion underneath. That's when true. When you open up, you can go back up. But even if they opened the front door where you go in, if they had the number roll there, you could just pick a number and sit down. I don't see what the big problem would be about opening that door an hour early to have staff here. Yeah, I don't know. I've only been to that clinic once, and that was years ago. I had strep throat. I was desperate. Yeah, you can't get an appointment. Yeah. You know, if you're not there, they'll give you an appointment for that day, but you can't call up and make an appointment for any other day. You have to go back and stand in line again. Diane, I hope you're doing okay. Oh, I will be doing okay. I'll be sitting down on somebody's lap trying to bite the nose off, get me a doctor. Good luck. Let me know how it goes. All right. Bye-bye. All right, Diane. Bye-bye. And I, this is before I took my week's break. And oh, big thanks, Linda and Tim, for covering me up for a bit. So someone called about Mercy Room and uh, the Health Sciences Center. And I threw this out. Like, for instance... And we can talk about the old digital ID inside of healthcare. One of the recommendations come from the federal government attached to that $196 billion of spending over 10 years, which I think is also something that gets exaggerated to the nth degree. But, like, if I get a text message reminding me of my hairdo, and I text them before they are, I arrive to be told whether or not they're ready for me, and I made this suggestion, and some people thought it was outlandish. I'm not 100% sure why, but if, for instance, you present yourself at an emergency room, and there's going to be lots of people say, I just wish we had an emergency room where I live because it's been closed for months, wherever that might be, Bonavista, Whitburn, elsewhere. So I present, I get triaged. I don't know, and I don't get a number because there's lots of moving parts, whether it be people coming in on ambulances, other people presenting who are much more uh, dire circumstances than I might be. But most people have a phone. So is it actually workable, manageable, or is it actually just fundamentally stupid that after I've been triaged, if I don't want to sit in the emergency room with everyone else who's sick and I want to be a bit more comfortable and warm and read my book or listen to the radio, if I just went out and sat in the car, 
So I was less congested. I'm more comfortable. And they send me a text message. And at that point, I get five minutes to present myself in the emergency room or I lose my spot. Like, does that even make any sense? I mean, just think about folks who are standing out in the cold or sitting out in the cold outside a walking clinic. It's got to be a bit of a better way. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Andrew's there to talk about, oh, the clinic in Whitburn. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us try line number two. Andrew, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well. Thank you for asking. How about you? Oh, I'm wonderful, especially after the... The big turnout, a wonderful success uh, we had yesterday with our protests. We what had, happened? Uh, we had hundreds of people uh, that uh, turned up there, and it was great to see such wide support from not only Whitburn, but the surrounding communities as well. And uh, there was a very clear message there yesterday from those present that 24-7 emergency care is, is the very least we're going to accept. And our MHA spoke uh, at the protest, and she said she backs us 100% on what we're doing here today, and that the clinic must open. But her idea of opening and the Liberal government's idea of opening is not our idea of opening. We don't want an urgent care center. We want an emergency center like we had before that's operational 24-7. Okay. So... If they're talking about staffing, so is it a matter of you don't believe them on the staffing shortage, which has led to the long-time closure of the clinic in Whitburn at the Newhook Center, or what is it that you think the government could do or is not doing on purpose? I'm a little bit uh, lost on some well, of the messages. Well, Patty, we're, we're seeing the signs there. I mean, a number, number uh, of months ago before the closure, there was... Uh, security cameras installed. There was uh, motion detectors installed. Uh, there, you know, they keep saying 16 months. The clinic wasn't closed 16 months. It was closed 13 months. So it leads us to believe for three months prior they were talking about reducing services at Whitburn. And the math doesn't add up, as I said at the protest yesterday. That clinic sees 9,000 emergencies every year when it was fully operational. Placentia and, and Old Perlican only sees half of that. Placentia only sees 4,500 emergencies per year. And those two clinics are open. And, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a, a competition. They need service too. But it doesn't make sense to reduce Whitburn when it's such an important clinic to the surrounding areas. So your suggestion, Andrew, is that the government is purposely picking winners and losers, and I mean by that communities that will keep a clinic and communities that will not, as opposed to uh, whatever clinic is lucky enough not to have lost their doctor or their nurse practitioner or their pharmacist or whatever the case may be, but Whitburn did. So you think that there's winners and losers on purpose here? Well, well, I mean, you know, it's all in the health care accord, right? Uh, we're... Like where I am, I'm to in Dillo here. I, I can get to St. John's in an hour. I can get to um, Placentia in 45 minutes. I can get to Carboneer in 30 minutes mm-hmm. on a good day. Yep. But we had a case there recently where an ambulance driver was seven hours getting to Whitburn in, in the snowstorm we had a couple of days ago. It's much easier to get to Whitburn only 10 minutes away, right? 
and uh, I mean it, it serves twenty thousand people in these surrounding communities. So it's not it's not small numbers here, right? And uh, uh, we we need a commitment from government that the clinic will be restored to 24-7. I mean, we understand the staffing shortages. We understand these challenges. No one is disputing that. We're not unreasonable over that. But we need a commitment that is not going to be turned into an urgent care center and services reduced. Because at the time that clinic closed, it was a fully staffed clinic with five doctors, five nurses, and a, a lab, fully operational lab. Now we have nothing. Yeah, laboratory services are going to suffer. There's no doubt in my mind. I mean, I remember the big uproar when the lab services were taken out of Placentia. And then in the long run, it didn't really make it that much worse. But when people and communities feel like it's being chipped away at, then all of a sudden everything's a big deal. And I'm not trying to say that it's not. But, for instance, if this was just a conversation about an extended 12-hour turnaround for laboratory results, then people would be frustrated, but then they wouldn't be as mad as folks are today. Because if you think that this is a calculated effort and you think that, you know, urgent care isn't, isn't a good enough categorization, then eventually everything plays a role. It'll be the politics of the day, it'll be the money of the day, the staff, the community versus community, the erosion of services. So it all adds up, and it adds up very quickly. And, I mean, I've heard on your show today a litany of concerns over health care. And, I mean, the government needs to start being more proactive as opposed to reactive. I mean, instead of spending hundreds of dollars on, uh, on traveling nurses and hundreds of thousands of dollars on unnecessary stuff that, that a little bit of foresight could have uh, uh, prevented, because the nurses' union been mourning for years that there's going to be a nurse, nursing shortage. And government ignored it. And, you know, not to be rude, or, 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 but, I mean, it's just the way I see it. We have a, do, a, a premier who's a doctor. And, you know, when Premier Fury got in, the first thing came to my mind, well, he, ha, he would have insight more than anyone, you know, on, on health care. Maybe he could, you know, improve the system. But I, I don't see it happening. And it's the same thing, you know, with our MHA. She has a nursing background. So you would think, you know, a little bit of insight would be would be helpful, right? Yeah. Okay. You know, I guess the same argument goes with, you know, who gets to be the minister responsible for X, Y, or Z without any real background in that industry or in that world. So, and this is not to add to any confusion or anything, but do we think that if we had a oil and gas executive as the premier that we would all of a sudden have more oil and gas? If we had a doctor at the helm, would we fix the healthcare system? If we had a former principal of a school, then the education system would be automatically improved. When, in fact, what we don't get enough of is understanding exactly who's behind the decisions here. You know, yeah. whether it be the senior bureaucrats, and I think we kind of lose sight of that. They're, for the most part, nameless, faceless. They are the keepers of the information. They're the ones that remain constant in the department when the ministers change fairly frequently. But we don't know what they know. We don't know their thought process. We don't know who's actually making decisions that are eventually rubber-stamped by ministers or rubber-stamped by premiers because there's a big behemoth of government officials at the senior level who probably, in reality, know a lot more, do a lot more, and have a lot more authority than we realize, but we never get to talk to them. And so we just, you know, blame it on the politics of the day, which, I, I mean, that I do it all the time. But I'm not so sure we're even 
beating down the right door sometimes. And, if you know uh, what I mean. Someone just sent me a text there then. Uh, Placentia has uh, 24-hour uh, lab services right now. Yeah, they took it away at one point. I was just making a point that when they took it away, the place went up. It didn't really result in anything, but a local staffer, I believe, brought it back. But anyway, yeah. But uh, uh, the point I'm trying to make today is it's very clear. Um, all our residents are, are standing behind this 100%. We're not backing down. We're taking no for an answer. And if we have to have 100 protests, we're going to do it. Because as long, and I said it yesterday, I'll say it again, as long as there's a breath in me, I'll fight for that clinic because I believe it is an essential service for this area that if we lose, we're going to be severely handicapped when we, when we do lose it. I appreciate the time, Andrew. Thanks a lot for the call. Yes, thanks, Patty. Take good bye. care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, it's the PUB. Everybody's fave. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one, Doc, you're on the air. Dennis O'Keefe on one. Yeah, got me? I got you now. How you doing? Not too bad. How you doing? You had a, I'm doing well. Boy, you had a, a week's break. Good for you. Yeah, had to have it. Well, we've got to burn our holidays before we lose them, so I guarantee you I'm not losing them. <laughs> you got to retire in order not to lose anything any day you have a day off. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Listen, Betty, uh, before I, I get to the topic, I, I got a suggestion for that lady who had to wait outside for an hour in the bitter cold in order to, in a lineup to get indoors to wait. Yep. You know, a suggestion to Tom Osborne and the Minister of Health, go in and line up with the people and get a feel for what it's like standing out in the cold, just waiting to get in in order to wait to get to see somebody. And uh, anyhow, I thought I'd, I'd mention that, but in the meantime... You know what I think is a better idea than that, even, Dennis? is to have uh, people in charge of day-to-day operations from the regional health authorities do it. Because yeah. they're the ones ultimately are going to be able to make these types of operational decisions and to make an adjustment. It doesn't require a province-wide, one-size-fits-all, every single clinic will have the exact same protocol. If we have space uh, restrictions in one clinic or another and come up with something that could indeed be like a pilot project, to use as an example to work out the kinks, to maybe have a public policy that is brought forward by a minister, fair enough. But it's, you know, and here's why I say that. Because at the most recent uh, annual general meeting for Eastern Health, the gentleman in charge, because Mr. Diamond moved off to the role of amalgamating all the RHAs, he said he wasn't aware of the issue regarding work-life balance. There's a classic example of walking a, a mile in someone's shoes because that's what the vast majority of healthcare professionals are talking about, yet he says he didn't really know about it. So that just speaks to the glaring disconnect between those in leadership, those in authority, and the folks who are on the front line. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I tell you, Patty, I got two brick bets that I, or two bricks I'm going to fire this morning and one bouquet. Uh, I'm firing a brick at you. Turn that phone off. Okay, right okay. now, it's in the pocket, boy. Problem. Hi, Dennis, I hear you on the radio. Okay, here we go. That's daughter number one. Here we go. Say hello uh, for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, um, I know you're sick of hearing this, and so am I, but by the PUB, they did it again last week. They dropped the price on 12.01 on Thursday, and they... 
12.01 on Friday, they dropped it uh, another 16 cents. You know, and a lot of people were left to hang out to dry. And I really don't understand why it is that Premier Fury and Minister Studley don't really do something about this before that report comes out, because that's going to be next October, before, if the PUB ever goes public with it, start off with. What do you want politicians to do regarding the price setting? Right now, I want to know what the flaw is in the formula, because I know the formula they're using is not the formula that the original Petroleum Commission under George Saunders did way back in the early 2000s. The formula is flawed. They had all the information they needed. They, you know, just dropping the price two and three times in two days. I mean, that's ridiculous. That was never the purpose of the interruption formula. Well, it's like a dog's stomach, right? It's up and down. I can't really make heads or tails. But we're told at one point that they would be forced to be more transparent. And I keep using this one phrase that I saw tweeted out by uh, Boyd Merrill, is just knowing the recipe doesn't make the cake taste any better. But it just becomes so confusing. And I don't think any party has treated the PUB differently in the last couple of decades. But, you know, I just don't quite understand that if we don't have the same formula that's being used in, say, for instance, Nova Scotia, right there, why or why not? Because we do have geographical and logistical challenges that might be a bit different than Nova Scotia, but that doesn't factor into the requirement of a different formula. And just to tell me that there's a shortage or a wealth of New York jet at the port that doesn't really justify 35 cent hikes or 16 cent uh, decreases followed by six cents based on what? So I can't follow it and I try. No, and I can't. And I was there at the very beginning when we went down the road to regulation. And despite what Dan McTagg says uh, every week, uh, regulation is good if if the formula that is put in place is the proper formula and Whatever happened to the formula, this is not the way it was originally played out. So why the Premier or the Minister don't call, rope in, uh, 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 not Diane Whalen, Darlene Whalen, to chair the PUB and find out what the heck is going on. Second thing, Paddy, the man who's hurting Canada the most today is not Justin Trudeau. It is the federal politician and the party that is allowing Justin Trudeau to stay in power. And that is Jangmeet Singh and the NTB, uh, NDP, and Jangmeet Singh has to be the biggest hypocrite. Why? Because he has a Rolex? <laughs> no, because, you know, he goes into Parliament and he calls Trudeau uh, out, and rightly so, for patronage for uh, ethics violations, for wasting millions of dollars, for hundreds of millions, for corruption. So clearly he thinks very, very little of Trudeau and the Trudeau government, yet he props that government up every single day. Yeah, at least for now. So, I mean, this is, again, I guess just things have become really contentious, so I don't know where the conversation begin and end any longer. But minority parliaments, this is just how it works. 
So I know people are frustrated with Trudeau and Singh and their supply agreement or arrangement that they have in place. But every time we've had a minority parliament, someone has been that party. Someone has been that person. And at this time, it just is, uh, factually, Jagmeet Singh and the federal NDP. Of course. Yeah, but now, this has this is, this is gone to the extreme now. And I can guarantee you that, uh, that Tommy Douglas and Jack Layden would roll over in their graves with chagrin at what's happening to the federal NDP, let alone the provincial crowd. The federal NDP, the federal conservatives were uh, under Harper were propped up by Jack Layton and the NDP in a minority yeah. parliament. I don't know to this extent, but I mean, you know, Trudeau's running wild. Anyhow, my bouquet. Quickly. Dave Cochran, one of oh. the finest, if not the finest journalist in Canada, he is professional, he is informed, he puts the people who are who, whom he's interviewing at ease, and yet he's quite able and, and really does a good job of asking the really, really hard questions. I did a fair number of interviews in my time with, with Dave Cochran, and I always felt at ease. I always felt comfortable in the chair, knew that there were questions coming, but I always knew that they were hard questions coming, but they were going to come in a very professional, non-threatening, I-got-you-in-a-corner type of journalistic integrity that uh, I, I saw in a few others. So I want to say that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians should be very, very, very proud of David Cochran because he's the best in Canada. Here, here. Uh, Cochran is he's, he's that, but I'll tell you what. He's insightful, and he's quick, and he's yeah. funny. I, I, look, and I don't know if Dave is listening at this moment, even though I know he tunes in every now and then. Is I, You're throwing the bouquet because Mr. Cochran has been now placed as the permanent host of Power and Politics on right. CBC News, and uh, deservedly so. Uh, yeah. I think he's terrific. He was certainly the right person for the job, and hearty congratulations to David. I think he does a terrific job. And there's, I think, a legitimate debate as to who is the... Best informed, most professional journalist in the country. Cochran is on that list for absolute sure. And so bravo to David, and I'm sure he appreciates the bouquet. And you know what? Uh, CBC guys get torn apart a lot. But when he tweeted out, hey, I got a new job, the line share replies were very encouraging and congratulatory, and he deserves it. So good on him. You know, I'll I'll add to it. it. Look, people don't realize just how high or much, how far above our weight that we actually punch in worlds like that. Just add to it, one of the other big names on that particular company's roster is Tom Power, who's also yeah. fabulous. I mean, it's yeah. just unbelievable how good these guys are. So bravo to Cochran, and I'm sure he'll be great in that role, and I appreciate the time, Doc. Well done, well done, Dave. And Patty, you're doing a great job too, buddy. Well done yourself. I'll take it. Thanks a lot. Okay. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. All right, uh, break time for the news. When we come back, we're talking about a snow clearing, HMP, and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the where, the where, the mayor of the town of Whitburn. That's Hilda Whalen. Mayor Whalen, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Now, first of all, I'd like to apologize to uh, all the crowd that were at the 
the protest yesterday. I was actually in hospital myself in an IV. Uh, that's where I'm on my way home from now. Nothing serious, but enough to keep me away. Uh, I am really disgusted with this uh, uh, clinic closing. I have been in uh, many, many conversations, many meetings with the minister, Ron Johnson, this, that. And it, they are trying to put there a urgent clinic and not 24 hours. And um, in the meeting, I said to him the other night, I said, that's fine for now. It's better than what we got. But you can't, I said, expect me to even accept or think about it, that this is going to be in a long process. You know, it's very, very irritating to stop and think about our health system uh, in our health care. We need so many people in every department of the health care, the education the same. But there's one place where we're flush, flush with employees, and that's the Confederation building. Everything else is affected. There's something underlying here. I said from the very beginning, you heard me said it, say it, and many more. You can't expect someone to dig up their roots from anywhere and come here for the same money that they're getting from where they are, number one. Number two, they put in this big contract of virtual, well, half the oil and got no cell coverage, and no one's going to put their arm through the monitor of the exam. You know, that's crazy. But the thing is, they're paying them $80 while they're paying the in-clinic doctors less than half. So they're not thinking right here. Are you talking about travel nurses in that price? Uh, well, not traveling nurses. No, the visual... Uh, or virtual care. Contracts, yes. They're, they're paying double what they're paying. I mean, the locums and the traveling nurses, I know that I guess it's a necessity to probably take the pressure off of here, there, and everywhere. Right. Just just so we understand exactly what we're talking about here. Are you referring to the contract for phone med for the 811 service? Because that's the double issue. That's, you know, we pay them like 82 bucks per call, and sometimes the result is as simple as you need to go see a doctor. So we paid them 82 bucks to tell me to go see a doctor if I'm lucky enough to see one. Then I go see the doctor, and they bill MCP. So that's what you're talking about there, is it? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, I mean, that I know we need more services, and they're trying to find a way around it. But that can't replace the doctors. I mean, the problem is they're just not putting the money on the table. And never, ever in history has there been any project where you could say to a government, put what money you like on the table to fix this. And neither party, no one in the province is going to say anything. It's not because we don't have the money. It's because the money is not prioritized and spent properly. This has been in the making for years and years. Now we're in a crisis. And the first thing I, and you heard me, me mention it a year ago, was the problem they had with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of only taking X amount a year, seven people. And uh, so they worked on that and they fixed it. But then I hear, and I'm going back and forth and saying, why have you got anybody? You know, tell me you got one doctor. I'm saying that every month, right? But then I hear on CBC, uh, uh, Mary Bullock, I think her name was, she was the president of the, the Association of Canadian uh, Doctors, uh, Students Training 
overseas. Yeah, we have a huge problem there. Foreign trained Canadians. Yeah, that's a residency issue that is really a provincial college problem, isn't it? Actually. And now, so so, uh, when Fury says, give me a call, you know, is his call going to get them people from Australia? And do we have? To, and my my question was exactly to the meeting we had uh, with uh, Ron Johnson and and then Bugden and some of the officials the other night. I said, so do, are they running into the same problem if they're going to uh, Ireland? So they're going to run in every country around uh, internationally to bring the Canadians home when they can't get them in? Then you think you should try to work on on fixing that first so you can get them in through. Like, it's, this is so disorganized. But we can, though. We can make that change, uh, Mayor Whalen, because, you know, like, for instance, if you mention Ireland, there's a huge difference between how the European Union operates and the mobility of people that are in a, a e- EU country. And, yes, the province has said quite clearly that the issue with fast-tracking credentials, you've got to make sure they, they're trained up to oh, snuff here, whether it be a nurse from India or a doctor from Ireland. But if you graduate from Trinity College, you're good enough to practice on me, I guarantee you that much. But, yeah, yeah we can make these changes. That's, that speaks volumes to me regarding national standards. If I'm accredited and licensed to practice as a doctor or any healthcare professional in Vancouver, B.C., how come that same person can't practice here with the same credentials? It makes no sense at all. You're right, and this is this is the uh, this is part of the problem. And like I said, they're not coming here if you don't pay them the money. They're just not going to. You can't say level two, and this not only apply to a doctor, but to something that you need it yourself. And you probably should have bought when it was at a good price. All of a sudden, you need that thing desperately. You got to pay top price for it. It's the yeah. same thing with the with the, all the the fields in the emergency departments. Not just uh, doctors, there's nurses, there's, I, I mean, to have let it fall this far and, and have a minister and a, a CEO here, uh, college physician surgeons, Memorial University, all of these, this group here, and no one, everybody just watched the doctors drain out. No one said nothing until all of a sudden, crisis, we got none. It's not good enough. And, and to, to me now, it's been over a year, and they are not getting their act together. You don't see them on there saying, well, you know, explaining uh, what's happening and uh, when or how we're going to get anybody. Now, we got this money coming in from uh, Ottawa, and I'm watching. That better not go in the budgets and be part of the budget. I want to see budgeted what we did had last year more provincially and this money on top of it. Yeah. I mean, in the recruiting issue, look, uh, again, it's probably the most difficult job in the province held by the uh, Deputy Minister of Health and Community Services responsible for recruitment and retention, Dr. Megan Hayes, because, and people don't like when I say it, but I think it's, I think it's accurate or more accurate than not is that it might not necessarily all be money. Let's just say I'm living in Mississauga, just randomly picked. I'm living in Cornwall, Ontario. I'm married with two children. For me to consider moving to wherever, I'm going to look at a big checklist. I'm going to look at surrounding amenities. I'm going to look at opportunities for my partner, uh, opportunities for my children, the ease with which getting in and out of the province, all these types of things, you know, the price of a home, the level of taxation. I'm looking at it all. Why? Because I'm in demand. I can go work wherever I want. So I have a long list of things that need to be satisfied. So am I going to be uh, wooed by 
a salary of $385,000 to start with versus a salary of $350,000 to start with. If the 350 has everything I need for my family and the 385 doesn't, I'm imagining most doctors take the 350 because yes, everything right. else they need in this world has been satisfied because that 385 living in a very remote part of the country with nothing for their wife for their husband nothing for their children i'm not taking that job so i think there's a little bit more to it than money yes and and understanding that there are different aspects there's some people who want to get away from a city if they've got children to live in a place with less crime etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's there's different th- levels here that you have to consider but the the one thing that the they didn't consider and should have because uh, 10, 15 years ago, they were told of the nursing shortage and the problems that we're having in regards to retaining doctors, et cetera, et cetera. They should have been training their own. We paid $300 million, I suppose, to uh, how much money have we put into Memorial University? And we are training people. Uh, and they're from Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and then they come in for our nurses. They should have went right back after Nova Scotia and said, I don't care what they offered you. Stay. We'll pay you more. If it's a matter of leaving for money, no. We'll pay you more. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a different different conversation when we're talking about uh, people sitting in training classes and training desks here, for whether it be registered nurses or doctors or anything else. I think that makes just a bit of a different conversation. I think the one where Nova Scotia came in behind us or before us was with either radiation therapists or respiratory therapists or technicians, and they offered 20% more. How many do you think took that offer? I would suggest a lot of them did. So when we've got you right where we want you and we're training you up, the day that you're given a green light on your application, that's when the conversation starts uh, with what's here for you, where you can work, how much we can pay you, what the relationship will look like with the regional health authority. All of those things, you know, there shouldn't be one person walking across the stage at Memorial University's convocation ceremonies who we have not talked with aggressively since day one about staying. There's no doubt in my mind, which I think is a different conversation than telling me that recruiting a doctor originally from Sydney, Australia, who's been practicing in Toronto or Calgary or Montreal, trying to get them there to, to come here, I think that feels a little bit different because for the obvious reasons, right? They don't have that additional training to be a GP or anything in front of them. They're ready. They're practicing. They've got all the experience required. That bit of recruitment feels different than someone sitting in a nursing school or the med school or the school of pharmacy or whatever at Mon or, or, or anywhere else in the province. Uh, last word goes to you, Mary Whalen. Go ahead. Well, with the mess that we're in now with our health care, we need to uh, to be talking to all three of those uh, systems because, like I said, it's been way over a year, and we don't have a doctor place, so they start thinking outside the box. Appreciate this this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Hilda Whalen. She's the mayor of the town of Whitburn. Just got an email with a bit of information that I was unaware of. I love getting the little sports shout-outs, uh, regardless of the age or the discipline. So apparently the Mount Pearl Blades under-11s were playing in Montreal this past weekend, Brought home the gold. Don says he didn't hear about it on the show. Congratulations to the members and the families and the coaches and the trainers and the managers of the Mount Pearl Blades U11s. Won a big tourney in Montreal. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Colin, you're on the air. Morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Not too bad, thanks. How are you doing? 
Pretty good, thanks. I want to talk about the situation at the penitentiary, but also I want to talk about the uh, the lack of a federal penitentiary in this province. You know, next year will be the 75th anniversary of Newfoundland and Labrador entering Confederation with Canada. And in those 75 years, we have had no federal penitentiary built in this province. I find that shameful. And the numbers of federal uh, inmates that we are housing now compared to years ago has grown exponentially. I don't know, sir, if we'd be better off with a federal penitentiary or just having no federal inmates. And they belong in a federal penitentiary, wherever that penitentiary might be. Yeah. That's, uh, and, uh, you know, the federal government has uh, an agreement with the provincial government to have some federal inmates housed at HMP. Yep. Uh, so, some uh, federal inmates are, are down there. So I, I don't see the um, the commitment by the federal government. And we have two people in the, in the cabinet from this province, uh, two cabinet ministers from Newfoundland and Labrador are uh, cur- in the current uh, federal cabinet. And yet uh, I, I see no talk at all about a, uh, a federal institution here for uh, for inmates. Yeah. It's just, it, it's just astounding. Well, I mean, the uh, I'm not sure what the right or the best pathway is on this one, but I think it just requires renegotiation of that deal. And no federal penitentiary means no federal inmates. I mean, it used to be everyone thought that it was – Two years less a day was automatic state engine P. Two years on the on the money led you to a federal institution somewhere on the mainland. Well, that's not the case at all. We got guys serving five years down at the pen, or maybe more. I'm not sure the the exacts or the specifics, but I'd just make sure that there was no federal inmates. That it kind of ease some of the congestion and overcapacity issues at HMP. And on top of that, and I've said this in the past, just to be told that I'm cracked. Sixty percent of the prison population at HMP is on remand. You know, there's a vast difference between the type of inf- infrastructure and staffing required in between a maximum and a minimum security facility. If we had to build 20 years ago a 30-person remand minimum security uh, facility, we would have really been ahead of the curve. And this was brewed. This had been brewing for years and years and years. So for a non nonviolent person being charged with whatever type of crime in a minimum security remand facility versus down at Her Majesty's, we could have really done a lot more with controlling the prison population because there's a lot of there's a huge difference between cutting a check and pulling a gun. So you know a remand facility just kind of makes a bit of sense. I've said that years ago, just to be told I'm nuts, but I think if we're dealing with uh, the complications of Her Majesty's, taking some people out who don't necessarily belong there, and whether that be a secure wing for people with mental health issues at the Waterford or an expansion of, whether it be with people who belong in a drug court have done nothing violent, you know, to have them somewhere else kind of makes sense to me. I agree with you. Uh, The current situation down there is, uh, you know, all spectrum of uh, offender, and not only offenders, but people who are just charged with an offense. Yep. Uh, they all get lumped in together, and uh, that's just not uh, a proper uh, justice protocols, in my opinion, for what it's worth. But uh, you know, even even the provincial uh, uh, HMP, you know, the various provincial governments, conservative and liberal, have talked about replacing that. The current uh, government has said that we're, they're going to replace it. I don't know where the provincial government is right now. The current government is on on. Uh, and the progress of that uh, shovels of that are in the ground. Being built. I, I, I have no idea. It, 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 the the work is being done. Yep. Okay. <laughs> well, that's that's news to me. <laughs> yeah, up on the White Hills, 
Um, yes, there has been work done. Whether or not it's at the pace required to get this piece of infrastructure completed, I don't really know. But there has indeed been shovels in the grounds, as they call them. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, you know, we, we need to take a, a look at uh, not just uh, uh, incarceration of inmates and, and people who are just charged with crimes, but anybody can be detained, whether it's in a provincial penitentiary or some other institution, a psychiatric facility, and it doesn't even have to be for a criminal offense. Could be, there's numerous uh, legislative provisions for, like, the Mental Health Act, where the, uh, a peace officer can hold somebody uh, involuntarily uh, because they think they're a threat to themselves or a threat to somebody else. And they haven't committed any crime. There's no reasonable grounds to believe that they have committed a crime, so you're not charged with a criminal offense. But a peace officer just believes that that you could be, uh, uh, you know, harm yourself or harm somebody else. And you could be held for for, for a psychiatric assessment or a court hearing. So, you know, this, this uh, whole idea of incarceration is not just people who are convicted of crimes who are charged with crimes. It's people who are not even brought within the, uh, the sphere of the criminal justice system, too, right? Yeah, I mean, and what those numbers are, I'm not sure even how relevant that is to the point you're making, but there's lots of reasons why a minimum security remand center was a two-decades-old idea that just would have really helped down this road. You know, because just think of the expansions that could be entertained or renovations or refits even inside that dungeon that is HMP for space for programs and services, uh, as opposed to they're piled on top of each other down there. There's triple bunking going on. I mean, it's just a lot of it is uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But anyway, I'll let you keep going. You know, everything is uh, it's, it's all about the environment, too. And you can have the best uh, rehabilitation programs and psychiatric services and psychological counseling uh, systems in place. But it's about the environment. If you're in an environment where there's rats running around 24-7, you can't sleep, can't eat, you're under constant stress, you're going to come out of there. If you didn't have a psychiatric problem or a mental health issue going in, you're going to have one coming out. I get the same reaction all the time, and so be it. Because I, as soon as that conversation happened earlier in the show, a bunch of emails saying, you know, do the crime, do the time. No one's saying don't do the time, right? I mean, the time is part of it. But the the... The top of the conversation for me is always this. It's public safety. If we're absolutely encouraging recidivism because of a lack of supports to reintegrate, if we're encouraging re recidivism because we now have a hardened criminal coming out of HMP that was just your run-of-the-mill, entry-level, apple-dumpling gang criminal, but now with the setting, with the environment, with the lack of programs, with the lack of services, now all of a sudden we've got a real problem on our hands. How is that in anyone's best interest? No one is suggesting the puffy duvets found at the Ritz-Carlton. No one's saying anything like that. That's not it at all. All we have to look at is best practices and history. History tells us quite clearly how we handle criminal justice in the country is not working. It isn't. How we handle the type of uh, surroundings that we incarcerate people in is working in the country. It's not. So places where they do better, lower numbers regarding recidivism, because criminal justice is not just a snapshot in time price tag. It's a long term. What happens over the course of five years back today, five years in the future, 10 in the future, because the two most expensive things, I almost get tired of saying this, but I'm going to keep saying it. The two most expensive things in this country is a night in prison or a night in the hospital. Currently in the federal system, it costs somewhere in the neighborhood of $160,000 to $170,000 a year to incarcerate somebody. That much. A year. 
Imagine the stuff you could do that might see that person not footing the bill, us not footing the bill for that person because we're able to do something to keep them out of there. But we're not doing enough on that front. I get the pound of flesh and I get the bloodthirsty, but bloodthirsty, all that does is quench your thirst. It doesn't actually make things any better. So we've just got to wrap our mind around these things. Everything that we look at, if it's not working, why isn't it working? If it's not working, what can we change? And it's not to be soft on crime. If you commit the crime, you are going to prison. That's that upon conviction. If we're going to just pretend that status quo is working, we're kidding ourselves. We just are. And that doesn't make you a lefty or righty, a dummy or an intellectual. It just means that you've recognized that uh, what's broke needs to be fixed. And to resist that because you think that's fine for people to be miserable and live in those circumstances or be incarcerated in those circumstances, well, we're not making it any better. We're not making ourselves any safer. And I thought that was the goal of criminal justice. I I remember about, uh, I think about 15 years ago, there was an inmate at at HMP who required uh, surgery. I think it was for appendicitis. And uh, he got the surgery. I think it was at St. Clair's. And he's a general surgeon refused to let him go back to the penitentiary because of the high risk of infection. You know? Yeah, and this, again... This is not due to crime. This is a health issue now. Somebody's going to get a serious infection if they go back to a penitentiary. And it's not about making as sanitary and as glossy as a Formula One garage. It's about making it reasonable. It's not about pampering. It's not about coddling. It's not about any of that stuff. We just have to do, we have to take a careful look at how we do deal with it, whether it be upon conviction, whether it be upon release, because currently it's just not working out. <laughs> and I'm just not in the business of saying, well, you know, it is what it is. You do the crime, you do the crime. I mean, cliches are okay sometimes, but they can't be used as a rationale. No, it's, uh, it's time to take a, a more... Uh, you know, bigger picture approach to uh, the criminal justice system and incarceration and uh, and uh, rehabilitation, recidivism. Uh, it's not just uh, lock people up uh, because you've been convicted. But like you said, that that uh, focuses the uh, or narrows the compass uh, uh, too uh, too little. You know, too small. In general yeah. terms. If you are part of the turnstile of criminal justice, your initial conviction and incarceration, and say your third trip down to the pen, is probably for something much more serious. And so nobody can tell me that's a good thing. Colin, I'm late for the news, but appreciate the time. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. And, you know, a couple of people since we've had this uh, chat are saying, you know, wouldn't that prison farm in Salmon Air still be a good idea? Short answer is absolutely. Nonviolent offenders out there, and there was lots of things being produced, whether it be uh, cotton firewood, they make in crafts, and yes, growing vegetables. For what? Use inside of public facilities. So that prison farm, that was a mistake. Uh, let's take a break. Trent, you stay right there. You want to talk about snow clearing. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Uh, Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Trent, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, buddy. Great talking this morning. Thanks a lot, Trent. How you doing? Goodbye. I love tuning in. I, uh... The last couple of callers there, uh, Mayor Whalen from uh, Whitburn and uh, Doc O'Keefe and uh, the Colin guy, I never, ever met him. 
but I tell you, they those three people are they're they are very uh, they're very uh, very well spoken. I mean, I know Doc was the former mayor and the the lady with the mayor and Whipper and, and this Colin guy. I don't know who he is, but man, I tell you, he he's a very very educated man. And he joins the topic of uh, criminal justice and fair ball. I appreciate Colin's calls. Oh uh, man, I can listen. I wish when I when I hear on the uh, the queue that he uh, that he's next in line or whatever like that. If I'm on another phone call or I'm even talking to the wife. I told the wife, I gotta go. I gotta listen to the next caller because, like I said, I can listen to him from daylight to dark. That's how you know I enjoy listening to him. But Patty, the reason why I'm calling in this morning is uh, I know it sounds like it's a it's a repeated topic all the time, but I'm calling in about the snow clearing up here in uh, Airport Heights. Um, I live on uh, Cherokee Drive, and it's only probably less than a five minute walk towards the school here, Ron Collie. And it seems like the last two great big snowfalls that we had. Uh, the, the sidewalk is always being plowed on the opposite side of the street. So my little girl, for example, and her friends who live on Cherokee, Otter, and Macbeth, if they are walking to school, they have to cross over the street to get into the crosswalk that's clear. Uh, they always use the crossing guard at the light, uh, when the, when, like in the summertime or sorry, in the springtime, or when the sidewalk is clear. They always cross over when it's safe to do so, and that's using the crossing guard. And that's why he's there, to help him cross over. But for some strange reason, the opposite side of the road up here is never being done. And um, I, think, I called the city this morning, and the first thing the lady said to me, well, sir, she said all equipment is being out and being utilized. But I, I don't think so. I mean, that is a uh, piss-poor excuse. Pardon the language. I know this is not a bad word, but pardon the language. I, uh, there was, no, snow, there was no, no weather yesterday. There was no reason why that, that sidewalk could not have been done yesterday for 8 o'clock this morning or 8.30 this morning for the kids to walk to school. Well, you're not going to get an argument from me because even and as not a regular pedestrian, when I go for a walk, I try to choose the trail system just because I'm more comfortable there. But even just driving around town, the numbers of pedestrians forced to walk in the street makes it treacherous. I mean, my heart was up in my throat driving around the other day because, you know, the streets are fairly narrow. The oncoming traffic, we've got to give each other some space. Then you've got a pedestrian with nowhere else to go. So we just create a fairly dangerous situation. Now, it's fine to tell me that all the equipment is out. But, for instance, the day of the big dump there early last week, the first cut we got on my street was at 6.30 uh, in the evening. So, you know, I get that we might have a capacity issue, and I know it's not as easy as flip a switch and you can clean up everything, but something as fundamental as what side of the road we clear the sidewalks <laughs> is a fair conversation. And, you know, the, and then to see a sidewalk cleared by a sidewalk clearing machine, and surely behind that sidewalk clearing machine is a plow with a wing that fills the sidewalk in, I'm just not sure that it's working the way they would hope it would work. It's not, Pat. To me, it's a very, very poor operation. Too many times I've seen, um, like I'll use an example, like that big uh, storm that we had back to her, uh, I think it was in the last part of early January, uh, late January. Um, I was going down Forsford Cove Road, and the sidewalk plow was out. This was like 11 o'clock in the night in the height of the storm. The sidewalk plow was out doing the sidewalk, and right coming up behind him was the, uh, the street plow. So whatever that sidewalk plow did, it completely disregarded what while we're done, could the, side, could the street play push it all back in on top of it? Like, I know streets have priorities over sidewalks, so don't get me wrong on that. But I'm just saying, the way that the system is working, it's, it's, a, it's a broken system, and it really needs to be looked at. And 
like last night, for example, I left I left my home last night to go down to the store, and uh, the sidewalk car was coming up on the opposite side of the, uh, the road of where I live. And when I pulled into my street, he was parked. The the, the sidewalk car was abandoned. I don't know where he went to. I don't know if he went for with one of his buddies. I don't know if he went for a stretch, but I don't know where he was to. But the sidewalk was pla- uh, was parked on the end of my street. And <clears throat> 8.30 this morning or 8 o'clock this morning, my wife calls me. She says, Trent, she said, can you call somebody or send an email off to the counselor? She said, because she said the sidewalk, pile is, the sidewalk is not done. I was expecting it to be done because I'd seen him 8 o'clock last night. But it's not done. And here it is now at 11.45, and it's still not done. Yeah, apparently someone just sent me an email saying that the snow blowing operation is, go, is ongoing right now in Airport Heights, which always helps because at some point when there's nowhere to put the snow, it ends up where we don't want it or need it, you know. So, no, yeah. and one more one more quick little thing that sure. really really boils my that really really boils my blood. Um, we haven't had what you say like a hard winter up until the last few weeks. Like we would snow, it would rain, it would snow, it would rain, and uh, but. Like you come up here on my street right now in Cherokee Drive, it's just like if you went. Uh, I wouldn't say you have two cars pass each other. And like, I know the city has nighttime operations, and I know they have their daytime. Like, what in the hell are the nighttime guys doing in the depot up until the last few weeks? The, the, the streets could have been blown back. Like, where where were these guys? Like, what are they doing? Sit back in the depot playing crib, playing horseshoes, or what? I don't think so. I mean, I think the operators, whether it be a snowblower, the trucks, the plows, the sidewalk clearing machines. They're doing what they can. I, you know, whether or not it's say we have enough machinery, we have enough people, we have the right structure, we have the right timelines in place. I don't know. I think those are fair debates, but the crowd in behind the wheel, I think they're doing what they can. I don't think there's a whole lot of sitting around. Like for instance, I use the uh, the app where I can see what kind of snow clearing equipment is out and about. Like use it early in the week so that you can figure. Well, should I go shovel now? Should I just wait for the plow? You know, it's just to make some decisions. So I think the equipment's out there. But, yeah, I mean, snow clearing is not an exact science, but, boy, what a mess out there now. And it's not going to be oh, the last really? snowstorm we have. No, it's not going to be the last snowstorm there. So you think, like they, like, like I said, up until the last storm that we had there on, uh, I think it was Friday, roll over into Saturday. So up, in, up until that, like, there was, a, there was a nice gap in between, in between like, snow, heavy snowfalls. There was no reason why they couldn't have been out and had everything blow back and push back. I mean... Now we get another dose. Like if we get another 25, 30 centimeters, because it doesn't seem like we get such thing as a centimeter or two anymore. Now it seems like it's always 20 plus. Now I'm gonna tell you, if we get another 20 plus on top on top of this, and the plows, the roads, are, you're not gonna be able to drive on the roads because you'll be able to get one car on each road, and that's it because that's how narrow they are. And something's gonna happen, and it's 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 gonna be bad. I appreciate the call this morning, Trent. Thanks a lot. All right, buddy. Take, Take care. care. All right, bye bye. All right. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like we all come from a very similar uh, stance on this stuff. Everyone wants their neighborhood, their street to be plowed early and first or nearby the top of the list and the sidewalks where they live to be done somewhere near the top of the list. And if you're, you know, it'd be great if the snowblower took a swing at my road. I'm not anticipating will. I'm on one of those secondary side streets where wherever we are in the pecking order. But the complications of the downtown and the city center really does eat up a lot of the big equipment like the widening machine which i would say for the most part is a snow blower and a truck but yeah but i do think the operators they do what they can it's whether or not we've got all the right 
protocols and structures and timelines in place? I don't know. It's a fair, fair conversation. But let's see if we can get the pedestrians off the road. And that's not a knock of pedestrians because you got to walk where you can walk. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay, East Bell Island. He's the leader of the official opposition. That's David Brazel. David, you're on the air. Morning, Patty, and thanks for this uh, opportunity. I wanted to get on and just acknowledge, and I heard your speaker earlier this morning, uh, to acknowledge the fact that I had the privilege yesterday of attending the uh, rally in Whitburn uh, related to the uh, health center in that region and listening to the people there and the issues and challenges that they have in not being able to have access to emergency health care at the facility itself. Got the opportunity with uh, some of my uh, caucus colleagues to uh, speak to the people out there and to the gathering, talk to some of the uh, councillors, the fire chief, the paramedics, the health professionals, and the individuals. And, and the theme here is they want to know what the plan is for that facility. It's not about they understand there's challenges within the healthcare system, but they want to know what the plan is for that facility. When can they rely on having emergency healthcare access in that facility? And if there's a different plan, outline that to them you know to hear them from government saying oh we're working on it but there doesn't seem to be a communications process here about what it is they're working on and what will be uh, the outcome uh, in providing care i mean what i heard from you know health professionals here there, whatever's being done is not helping in any way, shape, or form because you're getting the overrun from that facility when it's not open, going to Carboneer or St. John's or some of the other surrounding healthcare centers. So you're not addressing any of the issues. You're just bottlenecking it in some other areas and putting people at risk in traveling on the highway or at risk in immediately not having access to emergency health care. So what they've been asking, and this is reasonable, what is the plan? What is the strategy here that's going to address giving emergency health care uh, in that particular area that services nearly 20,000 people? We're into this a year now, Patty, a year without any solution or any real communications about what's being done, particularly for that facility. Yeah, I mean, it's always helpful to know what the actual roadmap is or the game plan or whatever the long-term plan is. So let's just say government comes down and says it's going to be a permanent urgent care facility, the end. Then what? Well, then, then obviously citizens will know what the situation is. I, I would think that they'll rally based on the principle that, look, at the end of the day, you're only putting uh, more pressure on the other surrounding health uh, facilities there to be able to address that. What does the, the uh, issue mean about what's the response time? You know, paramedics are out there are terrified. They're in the midst of a highway out there. What impact that has on accident victims and where they're going to first get their emergency interventions as part of that. So, I mean, any government got a responsibility to provide adequate health care, particularly in emergency situations, in the most expedited manner uh, and uh, as, as quick as possible in the immediate facility that you have. To say you're not doing it because you don't have a plan to be able to have the resources that are necessary there, that doesn't help any way, shape, or form or provide health care for anybody. Because all that does, if you push it to another facility, that means somebody in that region uh, has to take a, a backseat to getting uh, access to that emergency service because somebody else is moving in there that may be in a, a more dire need as part of that process. So, I mean, there has to be a plan here. 
we've said it for for years. I'm, I'm dealing with it right now about what's happening on Bell Island. The emergency room is closed for the next couple of days. We know what's happening with the ferry service, with winds and that. We're saying people need to have a particular plan. What is it you're working on, and what are the stumbling blocks? Because maybe collectively there's other entities that can help. Bonavista are trying to do something from a council point of view. I know uh, the people in Whitburn. I heard from councillors yesterday, and I know uh, on Bell Island what they would offer. But if you don't come out and say, here's our plan, and here's some of the pitfalls, well, maybe there's a solution if you bring everybody together. You know, if it's around scope of work on nurse practitioners or nurses or pharmacists or paramedics, whatever it may be that makes the ability to access emergency health care in an expedited manner and in a, a geographic location that minimizes the time frame, then I think that's what works for everybody. People are asking, give us your plan. You know, it may be a long-term plan. It may be a quick solution. But outline that. It's piecemeal now what we're hearing from this administration on what they're doing, if it's around recruitment or licensing or some of the other things that they say, the scope of work. Uh, we, there's no clear plan on what they, they need to be doing here. People deserve that, need to know where they stand when it comes to access to emergency health care. Do you foresee a distinct change in the delivery and the location of clinics and the categories associated with said clinics. I mean, if you look at the health court itself, if that's going to be the roadmap, then I think some of those answers are in there. Well, no doubt there's, there's been a discussion and still needs to be a continued discussion, but it shouldn't be based on the fact that people in rural and remote areas of Newfoundland and Labrador don't have access to proper health care, particularly emergency after hours health care which is vital to you know people's lives it's a difference between life or death in a lot of situations here so there has to be a hybrid system here that works from a regional point of view uh, from a logistical point of view and from a timeline point of view so I mean there's there has to be an open discussion here but so, I would think and hope and nowhere did I read in the health accord that it would mean that people no matter where you live wouldn't have access to particularly emergency health care access, uh, particularly in their most dire need times. Sure. So if I read between the lines, are you talking about simply expanding private offerings? I mean, there's all kinds of, of avenues here that need to be d discussed. I mean, the scope of work is a key one that we've been pushing for years. We have so many health professionals here who, you know, with, with the tweak of a bit of policy or changing of some licensing processes here, could take on some of the responsibilities that still would give people proper uh, professional access to health care, even in an emergency situation here, first assessments and these type of things. So there, there has to be a, a much more of an open dialogue with those health professionals, the licensing boards, uh, the general public here about what they would accept as being immediate needs for emergency health care. The primary thing right now, outside of the fact 136,000 Newfoundlanders Labradorians don't have access to a family doctor, is emergency need, uh, particularly after hours when their people are in dire need, need some health interventions and don't have access to it. If you live on Belle Island, you know what the impact it has. If you live in Whitburn, you know what it means. You know in Bonavista and anywhere else in Newfoundland Labrador, even in St. John's, we know what happens with red alerts. We know when ambulances come in and they're backlogged for two hours and can't unload somebody who's in an emergency need. Not acceptable. Has to be a plan. Has to be better dialogue. And maybe we change how we do it, but we need to have those dialogues and discussions, and it can't be pushed down the road. It needs to be immediately discussed. Appreciate the time this morning, Dave. Thank you. Take care, Petty. You too. Bye-bye. It's David Brazel, PC member for Conception Bay East Bellon, leader of the official opposition. Let's finish it off this morning on line number one. Good morning, Deidre Strawbridge. You're on the air. Good morning, Petty. Um, I'm calling from Clarenville, uh, from the White Hills uh, Resort, and uh, we've entered into the McKenzie Top Peak Challenge this year, and it's very similar to the Hockeyville Challenge. Um, we're currently in second place, and uh, it's possible to bring $100,000 to the White Hills for some uh, 
funds to help uh, invest into the facilities and upgrades, that type thing. Uh, the one big difference between this and Hockeyville is besides the voting, we need to get community support in the way of people taking part in challenges. So that could be doing, a, uh, there's four challenges, a ski limbo, conga line, uh, jumping jacks, and writing the hashtag Top Peak White Hills in the snow. So uh, we're looking to get uh, as much community support as we can. Uh, people can go to um, the uh, White Hills Facebook page and click on the link to vote uh, for the Hill and you can vote uh, once every uh, 24 hours and in the last week we went from just entering the race to we're in second place right now. Awesome. So how do you prove that you took place in the Congo line or any of the other three disciplines that you talked about or challenges? What do you do there? So when you uh, do the challenge you got to video ta video yourself on your phone or any other device upload it to your Instagram account. It has to be a public uh, for it to work. And uh, use the hashtag, uh, hashtag uh, White Hills, uh, Top Peak White Hills, and hashtag Mackenzie Top Peak. And uh, so in order for those to be seen, it has to be public. If you don't have an Instagram account or you don't want to make it public, you can uh, send this, uh, an email uh, to us at uh, toppeakwhitehills at gmail.com and we'll get it up there for you. Sounds good. So best thing people could do is go to your Facebook page for the White Hills Resort, which is a bit of fun. I have to say we enjoy when we don't have time to go all the way across, just to go out to the White Hills for a ski. Always a good laugh. And so uh, very quickly, what's the focus area? If you win the $100,000, what are you spending it on? What's the upgrade you're looking at? Uh, so some of the upgrades we're looking at are some inside, but a lot of the outside. So uh, looking at uh, upgrading some of um, the ways that we can get people up the hill if it's a really windy day, that type thing. Okay. And uh, like I said, we have three or four things outlined that we're working on, so hopefully uh, we'll be able to get those. Go to their Facebook page, click the link, make your vote, apply the hashtags, do a challenge, see if we can bring $100,000 to the, to the region and specifically to the White Hills Resort. Appreciate the time. Good luck. Keep us in the loop. Okay. Thanks very much. You're welcome, Deirdre. Bye-bye. As dear to Strawbridge from the White Hills Resort. All right, good show to kick off the week. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonce King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.